Hi everyone, David here. You're about to hear our episode on Saga issues 37 to 54, which we actually recorded back in October 2021, uh, and actually on the very day when they announced that Saga was going to be returning from its three-year hiatus in January of 2022. We did not realize that they were making that announcement while we were recording, so we did discuss uh, the hiatus and its status and whether or not it would ever end at some length. Uh, And after some discussion, we decided to leave it in for posterity's sake, uh, capturing, you know, the mood and the feel about that hiatus, right? Uh, Just as it was about to end. So uh, that discussion is outdated, but we thought you might enjoy it uh, just strictly for historical purposes. So if uh, you find yourself bored by the irrelevant uh, jibber jabber, hit that fast forward button. Otherwise, we hope you will enjoy that and the rest of the episode. So without further ado, here it is. Hello and welcome to the we should just stop saying the number, right? Isn't that a isn't that like a, a podcasting thing they say is that you shouldn't say the number of your episode? Well, uh, yeah, probably. We can uh, we can start rebooting to number one with every new miniseries, just like the freaking comics. Yeah, it's trying to remind me of the way comics are being these days, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that was that was always what we played. I mean. Again, a peek behind the curtain. We never do this. We never talk about <laughs> when we, we never things. we never workshop the logistics of running a podcast in real time, and we never discuss contemporary things that are happening as episodes are coming out. No, but I did watch Squid Game this week. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the new James Bond movie talks about this. Uh, we, of course, as we sort of in media res alluded to are in the midst of our Brian K. Vaughn miniseries. Oh, but I guess I do have I'd to say talk we're, about... I'd say we're on the back nine here. It's true. I actually do have to talk about the episode number because you said you had a joke. So oh, no. Uh, <laughs> as the uh, one so who I is... assume will be editing it, I will be cutting this <laughs> portion. <laughs> so this is episode 24. And David, what do you think about that? <laughs> Jack Bauer never uses the bathroom. <laughs> so, so... I decided so that, I liked that one better than than what yes. I was originally going to say. You claimed to me that your Jack Bauer bathroom joke was not <laughs> what you were going to say. <laughs> but have now pivoted to uh, interesting. I feel the ears of the audience on me, and I only want them to get my best material. Um, Is that a Luke 420 reference? Uh, <laughs> wow. Shout out to, um, like, Joel Greenhouse. <laughs> I believe that's a that might be a Caleb Greenhouse original. Anyways, wow, well, that's a that's a David original, but shared certainly with the Greenhouse who relished it deeply. Yeah, for you biblical scholars, just look up Luke four twenty and thank me later, Puff Puff. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, as as you said, Dave, we are in the the rear half of our Brian K. Vaughn miniseries. We are at the conclusion of our discussion of his most beloved, most. Uh, is it his most popular book? Uh, I have to say yes. Yeah, I think. At least from relative to the publication that he is publishing it through, certainly. Yeah, you know, it's like, why was a, like, cult classic is wrong, but it was extremely popular for a long time. It was a very common recommendation for new readers. 
I would say that Saga has eclipsed it certainly just in terms of like its more modern sensibilities as well as just like yeah it's it's the go-to there's kind of like a almost like a clean line from like Sandman to Y to Saga in terms of like this is the one that like non-comics people can get into too and and I would say both are notable for having like a broad demographic appeal especially to women right speaking of why the last man we are now in a I didn't realize this yeah post tv show world if that's because it's it's not out in Canada yet. Oh, I see. So have you, you know, of course, only through legal methods, you were sent screeners, <laughs> I imagine. Have you watched any of this yet? I have not seen any of it yet. Um, I'm so, yeah, I'm so skeptical. It's been through like such a roller coaster of development over the years between movies and TV shows. And yeah, I'll believe that there's a good <laughs> why adaptation when I see it unfolding before my very eyes. Um, but the reviews do seem fairly positive. I was going to say the reviews seem mixed from what I've seen. Uh, well, yeah, you probably are reading reviews from TV critics and I'm reading reviews from <laughs> websites with names like iFanboy. <laughs> <laughs> so it might there, there might be a little bit... <laughs> of those particular critics being primed to enjoy that uh, that particular content. Right. Speaking of websites that review things, I was watching Meet the Spartans the other night and there's a ref- there's like a direct reference to Ain't It Cool News. Oh, <laughs> and like interesting. In the, in the context of like this but it's, it's a specific Harry Knowles shout out where they talk about like him giving it a bad review. <laughs> Uh, truly crazy pieces of work. Would recommend Meet the Spartans. There's one great joke in it. Epic movie, which I also watched uh, yesterday or the day before. It all blends together when you're watching such great films. Can't recommend Epic movie as much. Meet the Spartans, a solid three out of ten. <laughs> uh, but let's not let's not dilly dally as we do, never do. Do let's not. Let's not. Uh, what's what's the opposite of digress? Congress. Am I right? Mm. <laughs> the they, oppo- they digress a little too often for my liking. Yeah, if the opposite of die is con, what's the opposite <laughs> of digress? You know that joke, right? No. It's like, if the opposite of pro is con, what's the opposite of progress? Uh, classic. It is classic. <laughs> certainly seems like something a man I've never met would say to me in the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, it's a real... Uh, I was about to say Steve Nash, but it's Steve Jobs, Pop Hope, oh. Johnny Cash. <laughs> Ten years ago, we had yes, Steve yes, Nash, yeah, okay. Vince Carter. <laughs> we had Steve Nash, John Nash, and uh, Crosby Nash. This is good. Thanks. This is getting better all the time. Beatles. Uh. Uh, <laughs> so, we're talking about Saga, episode, uh, issues 37 through 54. Let's... I mean, we'll start with just what are we looking at? Again, we are hit with not the most interesting cover in the world. You're uh, you're looking at the cover, I assume, to number 39. Or, uh, wait, or number... 37, wait. right? No, 39. No, so we did it's... 1 to 19, 20 to 38. No, that's not right. It's not? We had 1 to 18. We... That's right, yeah. that's right, that's right. All right, number 37. <laughs> we know how our podcast works. <laughs> we know what our, how our podcast works. We know what we talked about last time. We won't repeat ourselves. Precisely. But yes, issue 37, it's 
I, it's actually, it looks cooler in the wraparound, which I did not see until the very end because I'm reading digitally. Mm-hmm. Where So the full wraparound is like a full battle scene yes. between the uh, Land Folly and then the Wreath contingents. I didn't notice, I didn't take too much attention to see whether the uh, the Wreathers had other people fighting with them, but the Land Folly certainly have some robots on Pegasi. There's one mouse medic, <laughs> one of the unsung characters. Yes, of- they... They do both have, like, full coalition forces, the giant turtles that uh, are a staple of the large-scale battles with the Wreath Side are there. There's, like, a snake here I'm seeing, one of those Last Revolution leader-type guys, you know, and uh, an Isabel. Sure. So, maybe it's cooler, like, laid out like that. Uh, Just looking at it as, like, the cover itself, I I wasn't blown away by it, especially, like, like, issue 38, like, usually, like, I noticed the first few covers because I'm thinking about it in comparison to my famous segment, Just What Is Going On Here. So, the issue 38 has a really cool cover mm-hmm. where it's Isabel and Hazel and Isabel sort of, like, uh, magicking a little tiara on Hazel's head, which right. is a cool aesthetic. And just, like, the pink and black. Uh, I think that's an underrated color scheme. Shout out to Bret Hart. <laughs> Yeah, the the wraparound cover is unusual for this series. We've talked um, many times about the standard format sort of being just like a solid monochrome back cover that just typically would have like the barcode on it, basically, (laughs) like like a saga and image logo. But I do wonder if this is because it's like kicking off a new storyline. I haven't really paid attention to see if like the first issue of new storylines is typically sort of more of a more of a eye catcher like this. Yeah, and also, uh, it's not this arc, but the next arc, I noticed in the letters column that there was a uh, a 25 cent sort of... Yeah, the next, well, we'll talk about it when we get there, but yeah, the first issue of uh, of the coffin was supposed to be like a jumping on point, um, and, and was sold for 25 cents. So speaking of arcs, so, the, so these arcs do kind of have names, right? Because well, I saw... No, this is again kind of like a the coffin specific thing, I think. Like if you if you look at the trades, this would just be like volume 7. Right. Yeah, because like in the the I, I don't read the letters columns too carefully uh for these, but I did notice that in his introduction for this issue, he refers to this arc as the war for Fang. So there is a sort of an arc name that is given yeah, in this situation. I, I'm sure I'm sure he probably has kind of like general things like that in mind. And like I mean, I think we talked about in the first episode, it might be less true for the for the last chunk that we talked about, but certainly at the start it was kind of like for each arc they're in one place. And you can kind of call it like the cleave arc, the quietus arc, the I guess they're just in the rocket ship for the one arc. But yeah. Right. It, it, he does tend to kind of put them in one spot for most of each storyline, and definitely Fang is uh, is front and center uh, in this one. Yeah, definitely, it's an arc where the there's some relevance to where they are and the uh, you know unique. I think that's also one thing I like about this arc, especially, uh, and you know it's sort of emulated in other arcs, but you know it can it can be a little up and down. But like if when they come to a new location. And they are sort of confronted by the unique culture, unique politics, unique way in which the war has affected certain places. I feel like that is often where things are most effective for me is where like 
it's internal around the characters, but it's sort of based on this new environment that they come into and how they sort of it affects their perspectives on things, I guess. Yeah, I did. I did enjoy this first arc. I do like not to this is this is kind of nitpicky, but it does feel extremely coincidental that they just happen to be on Fang at the time when they're like, unrelated to that fact that these like high value political targets are on Fang. We the two warring governments have decided to blow up Fang. Right. I suppose that's that's a that's a tough break for them. But uh, but other than that one little like kind of like, I don't know, just just a little too coincidental for my tastes. But otherwise, I do enjoy this arc quite a lot. So to get into it, they have escaped, of course, from uh, from the prison on landfall. They are kind of a new squad that has pulled together. Marco, Alana, and Hazel are all back together. Robot is with them. Sir Robot uh, and Petrichor are also on the ship with them. Is that everyone who's on the spaceship currently? I believe that's because right. Because Squire is with Goose. Goose and Squire are under attack by the Will back on Quietus, but they don't know that. Yes, oh, and, and Isabel, of course, is still around. Yeah, and Goose does some chopping. Yes. The last time that we see him. Goose makes like the two best reboot characters and does a little hack and slash. Those are, you consider those the two best reboot characters. Yeah, yeah after uh, Mike, uh, Bob, Bob, Mike the TV. T- Mike, Mike, hold on. <laughs> is Mike, is Mike TV's name Mike TV? It is, isn't it? Who's Mike the kid TV. from Willy Wonka? That's also chocolate. Mike okay. TV, but I think that's why he is Mike the TV. Right, I see. So I guess that's the joke. I guess. I have to assume. Tune into our uh, reboot oh, watch should, along. I'm not saying we should do a reboot podcast. You know who's a, a, a prominent figure in the reboot infrastructure is uh, Dan Didio. <laughs> wow. Editor-in-chief of uh, DC for a long time. Right. Noted despiser of 52. His most famous quote, of course, being that countdown to final crisis would be 52 done right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, controversial longtime uh, executive at DC, also like a producer, I believe, on Reboot. Anyways, so the new squad uh, has pulled together. They're trying to get back to Quietus, but they are running out of fuel. So they decide controversially to uh, land on Fang, which is a resource-rich uh, but war-torn comet. We, of course, know it to be the homeworld also of Sophie. Uh, I would characterize the the like Middle East allegory here as thinly veiled. Would you would you say that's fair? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I actually I wasn't thinking too much about the political angle of it, but yes, definitely. I think like especially in terms of like religion is a major factor or sticking point here. And yes, the idea that there is this resource rich area which is sort of being quote-unquote protected mm-hmm. by two different warring factions because it is in their tactical interest right. to maintain it, yes. But but the only interest they actually have in it is the fuel resource that is available through it, and they don't actually have any concern for how the war is impacting the population of the planet, which is already in, in a state of tumult because of uh, a revolution, ongoing revolution against various despotic governments. Yeah, um, another thing that you did not mention is that we, we've just found out that Alana is pregnant. Yes, so we have. So that is a, uh, an ongoing thing. They, they end up staying for six months just because, I guess, they can't 
get the fuel? Is that the idea? Um, no, I think the idea is that they land and they they are planning to fuel up and leave, but because they end up devoting a lot of the ship's resources to supporting the family that they meet there, who have names, and I do know them other than Curdie. He's not the only <laughs> one I remember. There's a primary mother figure. Yes, a grandma type whose name um, we'll mention when we it know. becomes relevant because we, yeah, we know we, it and we don't need to yeah. look it up. But yes, they they start supporting and become sort of like a, a community with this large family that they run into on Fang. And because they're using the ship's resources to kind of support a much larger group than they originally planned to they're using more of the fuel as they're also in the process of refueling. So getting back up to full ends up taking a lot longer than they originally planned, which is, of course, a point of conflict with Petricor, who is unhappy about how long it's taking and doesn't trust these locals, three of whom are named uh, Nizar, Gada, and Elif. Yes, I'm seeing on, on the wiki, it lists the, uh, the characters out. So I believe Jabara is the... Yes. The matriarch figure. And then the other listed names are Curdy and Curdy's family. <laughs> so, you know. There, yes, there are Curdy. 14 of them on the splash page where they are introduced. Um, and I don't think that's even necessarily all of them. But we are, yeah, they are, they function more of kind of like a mob than yeah. individual characters <laughs> other than Jabara and Curdy. Yes. And we've not mentioned that they are like ferret people. Yeah. They're like, uh, they're real Timon types, uh, kind, sure. of, kind of a meerkat vibe, I would say. Sure. Um, Timon's a meerkat, that... right? Totally. Uh, he's not a lemur, right? He's a meerkat. No, he's gotta be. Gotta be a meerkat. <laughs> yes. So the, the reason that Curdy is relevant is because he and Isabel sort of, or not Isabel, uh, Hazel sort of spark up this, uh, this little relationship. Mm -hmm. They kiss. So, how old is Hazel meant to be at this point? Uh, that is a good question. At one point, don't they say it's been... They celebrate her fourth birthday in the prison, is that correct? Yes. And also, they talk about how... But then at one point, I think maybe this is later on, they say it's like the seventh anniversary of the two of them breaking out or something. The seventh anniversary of something. Right. So, you know, she's in the four to six range. It is a little weird that she's like kissing and that it's like, at least like presented in a romantic context. I get the idea that like a kid might like, they might kiss out of like sort of mutual fascination or interest beyond <laughs> yeah. like any sort of romantic excitement about it. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't know if this is like romantic per se so much as it is like, yeah, mutual curiosity. And and also, I think, like, I, I remember, like, in grade one, the concept of, like, romance had already been, like, introduced and was understood amongst my peers, you know? So, the, yeah, I don't think this is, like, insane. I guess not. Yeah, so, that, so after, there is, like, another, a, a shorter time skip than we've seen before, a six-month time skip. People do get a bit of an aesthetic refresh, which I always enjoy. Mm -hmm. That feels like, like, I know, it, I guess it's a thing with superhero costumes, but I feel like in terms of like daily sort of outfit stuff, like that's a very manga and anime thing is like X number of months have passed. We're picking up the story and everyone has a new outfit yeah, and like a new a, aesthetic. A full redesign. Well, yeah, I, I would say that part of that, although we are, I think we're both thinking more of sort of like the, the like shonen manga or manga that are like very much like 
kind of superhero adjacent, even if they're not actually superhero stories that that typically involve all the protagonists wearing the same outfit all the time until there is like one of those time skips or something like that. But yeah, it is it is kind of in that vein. Yeah. There also, there's also at the beginning of this arc, there's another piece of sort of foreboding foreshadowing, which I think is it's definitely not the first time it's been used. I can remember at least once before specifically, like she talks about in Hazel's narration, this is looking back on these events. Mm-hmm. She talks about there's the part where she's talking about like it's how her parents split up during yep. that the arc with, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And then she talks about how they're landing on Fang. It's one. It's a new adventure, but few adventures in her childhood ended worse than this one. So what do you think that he likes about this tactic is it just like sort of setting things up and having people on the edge of their seat or what what appeals to him about this sort of very specific foreboding foreshadowing you can't even call it foreshadowing necessarily it's more like (laughs) sort of like introducing this bad ending yeah i i do think it's a suspense tactic i think that he likes to sometimes set up an expectation of like badness and then subvert it. I I actually think of this really as being like the Stephen King move where in I haven't read like a ton of Stephen King, but in a lot of the books of his that I have read, he will very often like tell you exactly how a situation is going to end and then spend like the next several chapters sort of like unfolding it. And I do think that that is meant to be like a suspense and tension building thing where you like do a stark contrast of like here here's where like where the characters are as far as like you've known them up to this point and then boom i'm like telling you how it's going to be and it is bad and then like we're going to watch the like inevitable decline there yeah i i think that that can be an effective uh way of like building tension and uh i guess sort of like discomforting a reader <laughs> And I think it works here relatively well. I do like, like you said, he does tend to do it a lot. And it is like one of those things where like he introduces it early in the first issue of the arc. And like, I don't know if people necessarily still have that in mind by the time they're at like the third or the fourth issue, you know? Yeah, maybe not. I mean, it's also something where like, I mean, especially it feels particularly pronounced, I think, in these set of issues. But generally speaking, with with Vaughn in general, really, like thinking back to why the last man, I think is a good example of this where pretty much with every arc at the end of an arc, I'm expecting either a a notable character to die or a character to make some kind of like plot altering decision that like sort of drastically changes their circumstances. I expect those things from Vaughn at this point. He he makes status quo changes. He may like he writes cliffhangers that will like flow into the next arc. Like he definitely Yeah, it's it's funny because as much as like I'm not sure how much we've talked about this, some people complain, especially as we start to get into like this era of saga that like nothing's happening. But like Vaughn doesn't really write stories where nothing happens. You know what I mean? Like even even if like it feels like maybe a major plot isn't being advanced, I never am like nothing's going to happen in this story. Like the status quo at the end of this (laughs) six issues is going to be the same as it was at the start. Or, or even like, I guess in a way, the status quo at the end of these chunks, as far as like the main family is concerned, is the same. But like, uh, well, no, that's not true, actually. Yeah, that's not true <laughs> at all. I think, it's, I think it's more actually that the circumstances around the family are changing. Whereas like the main plot, the sort of 
the two warring factions, the fact that they're on the run, the fact that people are looking for them and hunting them, mm-hmm. that sort of goes by the wayside a little bit in favor of different sort of factors that like, well, like I'm thinking of the next arc mainly where, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that that whole arc is motivated by internal problems rather than them having to run somewhere or do something. Right. It's just like, well, this happened, Alana lost her child and so that motivates the next arc and i mean we've talked about it before i like when they stay more stationary when you have a full arc that's mostly like set in one place it's set in a new place like this arc or the abortion town arc as i think of it there it's in a new place there are new characters introduced who are you know only going to be around for those issues it creates new scenarios but it does take a little bit of time to slow down i mean i guess really like what this set of issues, which I I mostly really enjoyed, made me realize is that I don't care about the overarching story all that much. (laughs) Yeah, uh, well, I mean, as we have also kind of said, like, in a way, the like overarching story, such as it is, like, I think when we say that we're talking about sort of like the war and like the political side of of all that. And it has always been so clear that that is like the least interesting part for Vaughn. <laughs> it's like it's 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 set dressing that he uses to like move the story of the family forward, which is what he's actually interested in. And so like, yeah, I think that the overarching story isn't that interesting because like Vaughn is not that interested in the overarching story uh, or or rather he would say that the overarching story is like the story of a family and like yeah. their their like family story is the story. Yeah, and I also think another factor is that they've introduced enough characters and enough has happened that the external threats don't matter as much, right? Because like, so for example, in the last like, you know, 10 issues of this little arc that we're in, you know, you have, what's her name? Aya, Aya. Uh, Ayanthi or Ayanthe, something like that. Yeah, so you have her and the Will who are sort of hunting them. And that's, it's kind of related Mm -hmm. to the overarching, like the reason that they're being hunted is because they're this controversial couple Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, all that stuff that we've been seeing since the first issue. But it's more, it's all motivated by internal factors, like the will killed someone and like, you know, like they've had also, have they not met the will before? I can't even remember now. They've encountered him before for sure, right? They have... No, I don't think they actually have. They've they've come very close to crossing paths with him because he was on the ship with Gwendolyn when they hunted them down, but they didn't actually meet at that point. And then, like, when Gwendolyn caught up with them, he was in the coma. So, she had, like, his cape and his lance and stuff, but he was, like, off the board as far as, like, active players. That's real Thanos... I don't even know who you are, but where it's like, oh, yeah, like these two characters that we've been following yeah. for a super long time Ho and Ray, do good, not know each good other. Good to meet you at the end of The Last Jedi. <laughs> 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 uh, right. A wild storytelling decision. Um, but yeah, I, I do. Well, the I think we can talk about The Last Arc when we get there, but that is very much a story about long-term consequences but yeah i think i think we're like well past the point where the like intergalactic war basically is like almost like a macguffin in some ways it's it like comes up when they need to like push the plot forward and their status in sort of like the broader world is how he introduces some of the more like adventure side conflict of things on occasion but really yeah the the 
conflict that I think we care about and probably most readers care most about is like the interpersonal stuff that happened because of the war, but isn't necessarily like directly related to the war, like the relationship between robot and like the core family, which I would say at this point of the book is one of its most sort of compelling elements is something that like happened because of the war, but is personal because of so many other things that happened since the war sort of like pushed them into each other's strata. And like the conflict that the will has with Prince Robot that like ultimately leads to the events of the last arc is it like was initiated because of something related to the war because it was related to Marco and Alana, but is really a personal vendetta that is like you killed my girlfriend for like semi-war reasons. Yeah, which really, I mean, I don't think that this is in any way intended, but if you're talking about this as like a metaphor for like post 9-11 politics, <laughs> like foreign policy, like the idea that as time goes on, the war kind of like recedes into the background and becomes like less of like an ongoing concern. And it's more about the internal fallout that happens as a result of the war mm-hmm. is not not an unreasonable metaphor for U.S. politics in the late two thousands. <laughs> sure, that's just a read that I uh, that I just killed. Yeah, but, uh, but hey, we'll put it out there. <laughs> But let's talk about a couple of things that happen within uh, within these issues. So the big thing is in issue 38, I believe, right? We see Isabel meet her end or her final when, end. When does that happen? Uh, that yes, her is, second end. Yeah, the, the very end of 38, yes. Yeah, so yes, that's the big, uh, that's the big moment is that we, we lose Isabel. She is investigating this deserted robot compound on behalf of Sir Robot to try and find some fuel. Yeah, she's like doing some preliminary scouting because he's like, I'm going out there. Let's see if we can speed this up. And she's like, why would you go out there? I'm in like no danger. I can go look. And if there's stuff there, I'll come and tell you and you can go and get it. But don't waste your time and like risk yourself unnecessarily. But little does she know. Yes, little does she know that the March, who's another freelancer, Mm -hmm. has these weapons which are well they have a pig for starters a cute pig (laughs) who is able to sniff out these clevian energy signals i guess it it is also like a a, like native species of cleave yes and it has some ability to you know find people out yes and then they have these weapons which are for whatever reason capable of physically interacting with Isabel and ultimately killing her. Yes. The merch has basically inherited the Will's contract on the family uh, and is, right. is out and about doing those things. So yeah, Isabel's death here. I feel like this is maybe symptomatic of what we were talking about with like, there's now so many characters in this. I, I like weirdly feel nothing. Like Isabel is a character I like and to see her die, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> okay, like, yeah, whatever. I mean, the- the fact that she's already like a ghost maybe takes away some of like the impact of that because she is like she's already dead she feels less like concrete in like a physical sense <laughs> like it would not surprise you if someone were like oh like we have a spell that can banish a ghost and she is banished like there are, it makes sense that she is <laughs> destructible in some way almost mm-hmm. even though she is in so many ways the least destructible of the group but yeah i mean it's for me, I think it's more of a, this doesn't surprise me from Vaughn, this is what he does, like, I a bit of a Game of Thrones idea almost, where it's like, I don't 
treat anyone as safe. And obviously, we see a, uh, an even <laughs> larger example of that at the end of these issues. But the idea that no one is safe, I mean, Isabel is by far the earliest introduced major character that has we've lost, right? She's introduced in what issue two or three? Yeah, she her her first appearance as a pair of ghostly glowing eyes is at the end of issue one, and her first full appearance would be in issue two. Right. So like a, a very early central character, albeit a, a very secondary one. Like she mm-hmm. never really she never really has she, a she moment like shines where she's... for two pages and then kind of is in the background otherwise. Yeah, that's I think another reason why she sort of doesn't really feel super impactful is mm-hmm. like we haven't seen a ton of character growth from her. We've sort of seen her reveal like that she has more wisdom than she lets on, maybe. Um, and she, I think she's a great character to have in conversations, I think yeah, is yeah. The, the long and the short of it. She's, like, a, she's a good like spice for the stew. Yeah, she has what. What someone once referred to my manner of participating <laughs> conversations as as a a clutch chime in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that this goes back probably to the death of the brand, where I feel like in the effort to make it like at I don't know maybe add stakes or what but to to make it be like no one is safe like your favorite character can die at any moment they're like the emotional punch of the a lot of the deaths it just like isn't there for me if if that makes sense like I shouldn't feel more sad about Curdy dying than I do about Isabel dying and I do I feel way sadder about Curdy dying at the end of this story arc than I do about Isabel dying and I I just think like, yeah, the brand is the first one I can really think of where it's like, she came in, she's like the central part of this group, not like, again, not a ton of character development, but it seems like she's kind of coming into the center spotlight. And then she like gets bit in half in what I think is a panel that is supposed to make you be like, whoa, like, didn't see that coming. But it's like, I'd rather feel sad than surprised. And yes, I, I think that is the the biggest thing by far of this whole situation and of like Avon's whole career almost or like of a lot of his writing that we've talked about like his desire to have like to have that moment that's like super shocking Mm -hmm. can be to the detriment of like a death that feels earned I guess or like you know of a death that has some emotional stakes to it because like even at the start of this issue you would never be like oh like Isabel might die this issue right you just you put she just ends up in a situation it's like oh she's dead and in some ways, that's interesting because it is, again, the idea that it's like no one is safe. Like there there do have to be some stakes to a mission like that mm-hmm. where I guess. But then the whole idea of this mission is also like this isn't dangerous for me. <laughs> so I guess there's some irony there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there do have to be some stakes to like a normal like run of the mill for, for this book, at least like run of the mill mission where you're operating under the assumption that people are going to make it out alive. And I think Vaughn is good at creating situations where it's like there there does feel like there's a legitimate threat and it doesn't feel like people are just going to breeze through and make it out. Mm-hmm. But to have it be, like I said, it's, it's a shock or what you said, rather. It's a shock versus a sad thing. And, you know, even a, even someone like Yuma, like who, again, like you wouldn't you wouldn't open that issue being like Yuma is going to die this issue. But by teeing up the death a little bit and giving it some some plot relevance as well like there's really no reason that like it's like oh like 
with the way that this is set up, like Isabel has to die or like they're in an impossible situation and the only way to escape is like by sacrificing someone. It's literally just that like she's doing something and then she dies as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't think that's bad writing. Like it's fair, totally fair that like she's separated from the group. She's in an un- unfamiliar territory, like all this stuff. Like it's not unbelievable that she would die in that situation but it does take some of the weight away from her death when like she dies like seeming almost at random Mm -hmm. in terms of like if she she could have just walked in at a different time and would have avoided everyone (laughs) right i yeah and i think that there's probably an element in there that he was going for as far as like death is random like especially Mm -hmm. death during wartime like you don't you don't always get to be like ready to die or or expect to die or prepared or have like any kind of runway etc i think you could also potentially say like in a way like isabel's death has been like foreshadowed since they did like the binding with hazel which of course is like the last page we get like the call back to that but I, i yeah in a way it's almost Uh, like classic fridge death to me because it is so much more about like how is this death going to affect the people we actually care about than it is like how or like what what a loss of Isabel it's not like what a loss of Isabel for you the reader it's like what a loss of Isabel for Hazel and let's like read about how that is going to affect her but then like i i would even like that more almost if they did if that was something that gets explored but i don't think it does really get explored other than that moment when like hazel is like something happened isabel she's dead like i think the implications of having uh somewhat like a spirit that you are like soul bound to like they are they're soulmates in a way like yeah obviously not romantic but like they are literally like people whose souls are connected with each other and that connection is severed and i feel like we don't really see that that has much of an impact on hazel or on the group as a whole and so it feels more like it's like shoot we lost our useful tool that can like (laughs) create these visions and like go through walls and stuff rather than it is like we lost someone we cared about. Yeah, we do. We get the debrief between Hazel and Curdy where she talks yeah. a bit more about it. It's, so, yeah, there's the initial scene where she's extremely distressed in part because she has like felt the bond be severed and in part because the last thing that she said to Hazel was to like call her dumb and tell her to go away because she st- she stopped Hazel from murdering insects. Yeah, and then and then she talks with Curdy about it a little bit kind of obliquely for a couple of pages. I guess it's like yeah, part of it is just that like it doesn't seem to matter to anybody else. Yeah, I think it just doesn't have the impact you would expect. And again, I think that it is a function of like how she is not like one of the most important characters. Like she's not one of the most important characters to anyone really. And she's not an important plot character. I would argue she's kind of an important like conversational (laughs) character. Like in terms of like when you depict scenes that are people like in the group talking, she is definitely a very active contributor in those scenes. But like overall, she feels ultimately like sort of inconsequential to both the plot and like the relationships with the characters. And so I think that is what causes her to feel like less of a a big death like i mean even thinking about like marco's parents who we don't see nearly as much as isabel like over the course of their lives they feel like more impactful they would feel like more impactful people to lose than uh than isabel would i think yeah 
Yeah, just to, to, yeah, just to all this, I guess, to say, to note that I do think that we, like, in this sort of stage of the comic, this sort of back third of where we're at right now, it does feel to me a lot of times what I feel with the deaths is nothing. Like, I'm neither sad because I feel like Vaughn has prioritized the shock of the death over the emotion of it. But then I'm also not surprised because I'm like, you kill everybody. (laughs) Yeah, that is a big part of it. Like, you kill everybody is... But then it's like, so so what's different about the way that George R. Martin does it, for example, where... I think, and I think a big part, maybe a big part of that is that it doesn't feel like there's a hero to the story necessarily. And almost when characters become positioned to be the hero of the story is when they die. Like I'm thinking about, so spoilers for Game of Thrones, obviously. Spoilers for a 30 year old book, 25 year old book. A 25 year old book and a five year old plus television series at this point. But like I'm thinking about like the Red Wedding. Like the reason the Red Wedding I think is shocking is because we have started and and even Ned Stark going back to the first book, Mm -hmm. like that's shocking because he has been positioned as the point of view character, the hero, the person who is leading the characters that we like. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like gets chopped up and like doesn't have plot armor. Yeah. Yeah, I like I think when people talk about it with Game of Thrones, Ned is who they're primarily thinking of because in when he dies in Game of Thrones, it is genuinely shocking because he is so much the like honorable fantasy leading man hero figure. Yeah. That and and, and like he has like a point of view, he doesn't even die like in his own point of view chapter is I think part of it. And like he has like this plan, like he thinks, you know, there's there's just all this stuff where like right up until the moment that his head like his head gets cut off, it seems like he can still get out of this and then he doesn't and then it's like the immediate disorientation of like this whole book has been about how this guy is going to like put this kingdom back in order and he just got his head cut off and the king is dead like what is this book now about and the like huge like recontextualization of the entire sort of like political climate of the world which i will also say is like a much more built world than, <laughs> yeah than, because that's what the book is about yeah exactly fair. but yeah it 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 like at the time especially i think was like so shocking in terms of like how it broke fit like the convention of fantasy stories in that way and and it remains shocking but then i think after that as you go along it's less about like i i think at that point he's basically established the rule of like anyone can die so when things are shocking they're not shocking because it's like i didn't think that like he would ever kill that person it's shocking because of the either the scale like the red wedding isn't just like whoa like rob stark and caitlin stark die it's like the entire army of the north collapses because of like this this act of treachery yeah it's it's just things along those lines whereas like the death sometimes in Saga, and again, maybe I'm thinking of the brand specifically, the brand's death is almost like a jump scare more than even like a surprise. Like it's so abrupt. She just like is there one panel and then is like bitten in half the next. Like, and, the, yeah. and that's like, that's the beginning and end basically of the discussion of like her death. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, talking, you know, obviously, I think a big part of this conversation is going to be talking about what ultimately happens with Sir Robot and Marco. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that Sir Robot's gone for good, but I do feel like Marco is definitely 
gone for good. Yes, I agree. Like, I think, and I think that that is a perfect example of what you're talking about, where that that is a death. You know, obviously because it's one of the main characters, it's just different than Isabel, but it's also a death that like you said, it recontextualizes your conception of what the book is about. And it's sort of, it's almost like what I like about that death is like, it's something that Vaughn or, you know, Hazel as the narrator has been saying for a long time. Like it's not really a story about like her and her two parents. Like it's about her on a, like a very long time scale mm-hmm. and like everything that she goes through. And I think like to recontextualize the book as not being about like, that three it's sort of like that three person family unit and then everyone else is either like you know i mean you look at sir robot or most people in the book have sort of alternated between being friends and foes at Mm -hmm. one time or another and so i think that 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 it changes your perspective of like well like that or if not changes your perspective then indicates a change in the book in terms of that's not what this is about anymore like right yeah I, i do think like that is a, a genuinely shocking death in a way that the like, surprise, ghosts can be stabbed or like, surprise, like the brand got just got bitten in half, but you didn't think that was going to happen. Like it is surprising in a different way somehow. I think a big part of it is space, right? Like the brand's death is one panel. Isabel's death basically gets like between between the actual death scene and the like two discussions of it gets like a handful of pages. Marco's death, which we can well yeah, maybe we'll talk about it more later, but I it just feels to me like A, thematically it's so much more resonant. It is like the culmination in a lot of ways of themes that have been running through his story from the very beginning about like the cycle of violence and and the consequences of violence it's the, like thematically relevant to that particular story arc which like we said is very much about like long-term consequences sort of coming home to roost for a lot of different characters and just in sort of like the mechanical way in which the story is told the fight with the will is very much like art directed like there's not a lot of words after really for that whole issue there's not a lot of words so it's like a very visceral fight and then to have like give room basically for fiona staples to tell the story of his decision not to kill the will and then like depict the consequences of that just is is more effective than giving her one panel or giving her one page or having having a couple characters talk about it for a couple of pages later yeah and and also i think sort of going back to what I was talking about before, like the idea that they're they're in a situation where it makes sense that like one of them is not coming out of that yeah. alive. And like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, again, like I wouldn't have been shocked if the way it concluded is like, because, you know, that's it's definitely the way it's teed up is that like Marco, it's about a, per, it's about a personal development moment for Marco. He is like, again, coming back to this idea of nonviolence after like, it's, it's something that he goes through a lot, mm-hmm. I think, and like cycles back and forth on depending on his circumstances, how like ultimately necessary violence is. And so, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if it comes out being like he spares the will and they become like he becomes a part of the team right. because that sort of is the kind of what you expect not only from this book, but from a book in general like this, where it's like the Fast and Furious <laughs> thing where yeah. you beat someone and then they join the team and then yeah. that allows them to become a part of the team. Well, and especially like you're putting two characters who, as we said, have they've both been in the book since number one and they've never met until this fight and so you kind of just expect that like 
when you put these two characters who have basically been like the A plot primary protagonist and the B plot primary protagonist, and they like come together, it feels like that the result of that should be like, now these two storylines have linked up. They're not like running parallel anymore. And like occasionally crossing over, they have like linked for a more long term story. But instead, the outcome of it is like, they come together and like now one of those stories is over. Yeah. And and it's, it's shocking, but it's also shocking in a way that makes sense. Like, when you like sit down and think about everything that sort of led up to it it's like yes it makes perfect sense that a like that someone would die in this situation and just from like a storyline perspective that like when these two like big forces meet that like you're like either like one way or another and you know we see a lot of fallout i from this uh from that issue and sort of that last sort of sequence and obviously it's a bu- <laughs> it's a bummer that we don't know where it's going to go after this but i think it 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 fully makes sense that like you said when those two points converge like there's going to be uh, when let me use a, a a metaphor here when these two atoms come together there's going to be an explosion i don't think that's how uh atomic reactions work but the idea that when two chemicals come together there's going to be a reaction one Uh way or the other yes and and i do think also just in terms of like the other we're talking a lot about like marco and his whole thing it also like we've been told from the get-go that like the will is a bad guy and like is one of the villains of the story and is a killer like to his core and i think that so like Vaughn likes to sort of like lull people into a false sense of security with him by humanizing him quite often by depicting him as like a tragic figure. I do think that we were also due there for a reminder of like, this is not one of the good guys. Like he is, he's one of the villains of this story. And we've been told that pretty much since the beginning. Yeah, I think I think a huge I think what a lot of times the really good Vaughn stuff is when it's like, something is teed up in such a way where it's like, I mean, like I'm, I'm thinking of like Yorick and Beth maybe is a mm-hmm. good example where it's like, it's teed up very clearly. I think that like, this is not like, this is not going to end in like a happily ever after. And it's like, it's probably, it's not going to end in like, not going to not end the way you think, but maybe not end the way you might expect a story like this mm-hmm. to end. And sort of having that, like outlining that very clearly, and but then making you think, believe that then like still making you believe that there's going to be a happy ending and then being like no i told you (laughs) that's not gonna happen and so here's that and and this like very much epitomizes that with the the narration at the end being the same narration that's at the end of the first issue this is like a literally like in the first issue he laid like the groundwork to say like this is coming so anyways all that to say marco's death better than isabel's death made (laughs) as it should be but uh a very hot take (laughs) but to get back let's let's wrap up this arc relatively quickly so the the other i guess the main things that we need to know number one prince robot has been having very horny dreams about alana yeah he's going horny he's going full horny mode and he does uh make an advance upon her but is uh turned aside slash reveals that uh he intends to kill himself and asks her to raise squire for him all of which will be sort of undone by the the broader events happening on the planet which are that um wreath and landfall have basically made like a 
backroom agreement that Fang has become basically more trouble than it's worth, and neither of them wants to let the other side have the resources from there, but they both agree that if those resources were taken off the board, that would be an acceptable outcome for both of them, where they're like, if neither of us get it, then deal. So they have basically contrived to uh, cause a time suck to destroy the planet using um, uh, landfalls like monitoring station for the time suck and this like magical artifact from wreath to, <laughs> to <laughs> yes activate it so we basically have the the all the things coming together here where isabelle is killed and the march is able to sort of find their way to the the family um sort of following her trail back printer sir robot is uh high on fadeaway and <laughs> hallucinating and wants Alana to raise a squire, which Marco like comes home and discovers that scene and results in an altercation between them just as the March is sort of also there. Marco kills the March, right? Yes. He, I have it in my notes. I don't remember exactly what happens, but I have it in my notes. He, that he blows he, them, he blows them he away. He kills them with the rifle that uh, Curdy slash Curdy's family finds <laughs> Like on the ground somewhere at some point, yes, the green basic. So they're they're able to dispatch the march, but Petricor, who went out in search of Isabel, learned from a mushroom <laughs> <laughs> that uh, uh, basically about the like that they were headed for the time suck and uh, and that that would be the death of them all. So she runs yes. back to warn the family, and they have to make a hasty retreat they try to convince the meerkats to come with them but they are convinced that they will be protected by their faith and are unable to to get them to come so they have to make an extremely hasty blast off during which they are hit by like this gunk that is emitted by by the time suck causes a very rocky takeoff um during which Alana has a hard fall that ultimately causes her to miscarry. And we get Curdy's extremely sad death, which is sort of a, a, a very sort of like a, a literal manifestation of the loss that is also happening on the ship. The end of this arc, of course, five completely black pages and one black page with uh, a small narrative uh, text on it impactful i would say yeah i was i was surprised at how impactful i found it because i i up to that point i hadn't really found the whole situation with fang to be all that impactful for me personally um you know there's also like another thing about this whole incident is like this sort of element of cruel irony where because the big thing throughout is uh jabara i think her name is like her faith and her belief that like she doesn't need to worry or like not that she doesn't need to worry but that like ultimately her her god will deliver her from like whatever bad situation mm -hmm. she's put in and and then there's this sort of cruel irony she was right it, like we learned that in fact fang was gonna like thread the needle and not be affected by the time suck except that 
the the machinations of landfall and wreath like set it off so that it it is doing stuff when fang (laughs) comes by yeah exactly so like it's like whatever the opposite of an active god is where it's like if something something was going to happen one way but and only the like the interference of this incredibly powerful galactic (laughs) government like caused it to turn out a different way and so like there's some like very like that that's a very sad element of it like that it is almost so arbitrary and obviously the whole thing is based around the idea of like resource management and like tactical decision making which is like one of the very harsh realities of war that i think uh he he is good at hitting on there but yes like i think that the thing that is the hardest is like the most emotionally devastating about this is is the narration the idea like potential energy is the way that it's described which is i think a great like a great sci-fi thing because like obviously it has like a scientific meaning and then like a a more emotional meaning which i think is when sci-fi is at its best is when it's sort of merging those two ideas like when you're taking a scientific concept and turning it into a personal one and so yeah that the the loss of the loss of what could have been on so many levels is definitely like the the overarching theme of this last issue with both with the baby and even like her and Curdy's relationship and so the narration which i think is worth reading in full we get immediately following like we've just had conf- confirmation that the baby um that alana was carrying has died and then we get this narration, which is unfolds over four panels depicting Curdy basically begging for his life as he's like sucked up by the like black goop of the time suck, where Hazel says, I've had a lot of relationships in my time, platonic or otherwise, but the ones I think about most are those that never quite made it to term. The dashing first date who didn't call you back, the lady on the train uh, you had that amazing conversation with but never saw again. The cool neighbor kid you met the first time a week before he moved away. I guess I'm haunted by all that potential energy. One moment the universe presents you with this amazing uh, opportunity for new possibilities. And then, and the, and then of course is on an otherwise completely black page. And I think where you really get the punches to turn the page because that is on a, on a page turn and you have two completely black pages which I am, <laughs> I am a long-term advocate of the completely blank page. I think going going back to Zot, I argued that we should get, have had one of these uh, in white for when uh, when uh, Deco erased himself from his uh, his own simulation. Five pages. Um, I don't think you necessarily lessen the impact, but I do think that the biggest punch by far, like the the solo black page with the two words on it is impactful, but I definitely think the big punch is to like turn the page and have like the two completely black pages, which are so like simultaneously in a way like a literal representation of Fang at that moment, which is like completely drowned in the time sucks black goop while also yeah just just paying tribute to the like the the darkness on the ship with the loss of the baby the darkness that is hanging over them with the loss of the meerkat family i'm for i'm pro thumbs up yeah i think both of us definitely admire these sort of like stark artistic choices partly because like 
<laughs> we don't know what good art looks like. <laughs> well, and so, like, yeah, I do. The, the, abs- the absence of art is almost, like, more powerful to us. Uh, yeah, but I, I definitely agree. Like, even, like, me reading through it digitally, because it, it ends with the back cover, which is also black. And so, was, and so it's, like, it's almost like when you have, like, the like executive producer <laughs> like, at the like, at the end of an episode when like the first credit will show up because like i was just like page through and i was like it's black it's black and then the back is also full black but then it's like <laughs> and so that almost like worked for me in that Very way as Sopranos-esque. well yeah, and, <laughs> sure um another thing so let's talk about this i mean i i don't even know medically speaking like is it is it a miscarriage? Is it like a stillbirth? I know he's not being born, obviously, but it's it's very it's a very what I think is like so the the miscarriage is a very common I think sort of narrative tactic, and part of it I think oftentimes a miscarriage is a way to sort of almost roll back a piece of character development. And so I, I often don't like it because you know you're put you're putting a character in a situation where like their life is going to change dramatically. And then a miscarriage, it both rolls back that development, but then it also gives them new development, which is tragic and heartbreaking and all this stuff. I think the fact that that she's, what, like eight months pregnant, yeah. they say, I think that is a big part of what makes it impactful for me, is that, like, A, that, like, the baby is so close to being born, and then obviously, like, the fallout that it creates while there is like definitely heavy emotional fallout, the the fact that it creates like narrative fallout as well, I think is a very interesting mm-hmm. element of it. But like in general, like what do you, do you think that does this feel like a cop out to you a little bit that you you end the last arc with the announcement of this pregnancy and then within six issues it's gone again and like you've sort of taken back the idea of like adding a new character into the mix and all that stuff. Um, no, it doesn't. As much to me, I think because, I mean, part of it is that there's a big time skip that comes way before um, the actual miscarriage happens. So, such that, like, in a way, like, the anticipation of the birth is, like, not really something that happens, if that, like, weirdly <laughs> makes sense. No, I, that that definitely makes sense. Like you go, in, like I said, in the course of one arc, you go from finding out that she's pregnant to mm-hmm. the pregnancy. Like you can almost, ending. in some ways, other than the fact that she is so visibly pregnant, you could almost forget that she's pregnant in in some ways. But I, yeah, I think that like with the way that they chose to end that storyline and talking about you know things that didn't make it to term and things that like the the tragedy of lost potential, and then the fact that we spend the next arc kind of like picking through the consequences and and you know the way that the the other curdy is uh, a figure in those issues as part of the sort of like emotional processing like I, I think that unlike Isabel who dies and then kind of is never mentioned again the fact that we get to spend an entire arc sort of unpacking the emotional fallout of that sequence of events is yeah is impactful I, I think it's good. I'm not like crazy about the abortion town arc, uh, the coffin, as it's called, as like sort of a, a whole. But I think that what is accomplished by it inter- as like a storytelling 
you know, advancement of of the story that was started in the last arc and as a way of reckoning with those emotions is good. Yeah, and and we can sort of segue into uh into talking about this abortion town arc as well because I think there's a lot of uh, you know, it's a direct result of the end of this arc. Uh, is there anything else that we we need to talk about with uh, this the Fang arc before we progress I don't into think that, so. Or? Okay, so yes, so they go to this. What's the name of the planet? I'm very bad at the names of planets. And that I, find. I could not tell you. So they go to a planet. the 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 important thing about the planet is that it has it's it's Wild West <laughs> themed, and that there is a place called Abortion Town where you go to get abortions. Um, it's a great. It's a very. It's it's basically the Welcome to Sextillion yes. bit, where you you do Welcome to Abortion Town. Or it, yes, she, it's it's an owl lady in a wild west slash medical outfit. Did Please you know that she use like, use her uh, title and name, Doctor Sheriff. <laughs> That's really funny. I didn't even notice that. But yes, did you notice that? Like she has like a stethoscope bolo tie. Yes, I did, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and a sheriff's badge and pink, like three taloned cowboy boots. Like, and there's the big sign that says "Welcome to Abortion Town" with an exclamation mark. Like, and Fiona Staples, here's your Eisner. <laughs> it seems that you've been awarded Best Eisner for Doctor Sheriff's bolo tie. <laughs> Best ongoing bolo tie. Uh, yes. So there's that, which is a great moment. I mean, yes. I, I wasn't so the, super. Go ahead. Sorry. Go. No, please. Well, I, I I just I wasn't super sold on the beginning of this. Like that's a that's a very funny image, but ultimately, like it's a little. There's bit a, there's the, a lot in Saga of like here's a very funny image that kind of like once the novelty wears off, it's kind of like that's all there really was to it. Yeah. Exactly. And so. The what becomes the thing is so she can't get the abortion there. They have to go to the Badlands, and then there's the introduction of these bandit characters yes. who are uh, centaurs. So just to just to like clarify that the like the reason that she's here, they're telling everyone is so that she can get an abortion. But the real issue right. is that she can't deliver the baby that she has miscarried so it has to be removed but because of uh their assumption that it will have both horns and wings they can't just like you know <laughs> right they get can it, neither get, yeah they can either go to like the spell casters of the horns or the abortion clinics of the wings because of like this possibility right and so they have to go to this sort of backwater area yes. i read uh, i read a very funny interview with brian k vaughn where he said that the <laughs> coffin is the story of a family's search for affordable health care <laughs> sure i mean like uh, it made me some, laugh there are some elements of that like there there are like discussions about abortions and things yeah, like it that. is it's i wouldn't say that affordable health care is something that comes up at any point but certainly for accessible health care yes ac accessibility is more the thing um yeah i mean i i don't even think i think almost I like that it's not really about an abort abortions as much as it might be. But yeah, so they 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 go to these badlands. There's this whole mm -hmm. thing. That, what Prince, I think is Prince Robot uh, knows of this place that uh, you know. It seems like the more highfalutin amongst Landfallians would have cause to uh, to visit from time to time. Although we do see just like a grunt. 
soldier, it seems like going there as well. Yeah. And the the one the thing that I don't love about this arc is mainly these bandit characters. There's not much to like it's like I mean oh, there's Oh, Pa and Kid. <laughs> yes. There I mean there I guess there's something to them in the sense that they so they are a like hybrid family. Yes. Where <laughs> the father is human, the mother is a centaur, and then the son is like looks like crazy... he's sitting on a horse, but he actually is like just a centaur if you moved him back to the middle of the horse's back. And instead. like his and like the horse head is like not fully developed and is oh, like I a didn't skull. notice that. Yeah, the, the horse head is like is like weirdly like vestigial. Yes. And like, you know, it's just like, sure, like these characters, it's, I'm, I, I'm, I think I'm just a little past, like just introducing characters that like, are like sort of threats carried by the strength way. of their design and don't really have any characterization other than, yeah, sort of generally being an obstacle, but not really having any role to play beyond that. Yeah. So they, they basically just like serve the B plot where they only end up really interacting with Petrichor and sir robot like they become more of like the the characters there and since you know since we talked a lot about petrichor last issue we, we can talk about her briefly here i mean like so i don't want to talk about it too much but <laughs> have at so the one i i like that she is like integrated more into the cast you know i think she's a great addition to the cast i think she serves a lot of the role that uh I'm so bad at the names in this book. Isabel or Clara? Yes, Clara. I think she serves like that sort of the more cynical end of things. Right. More like quick to quick to violence in a way that Marco is obviously not. And Alana also tends not to be. Yeah. So I, I really like her characterization and the way that she fits in with the cast. It frustrates me a lot that her gender identity and this goes away in the last arc, but for truly almost every issue of the first two arcs, her gender identity like is a topic of conversation, whether obliquely or directly. It and the biggest thing is that like it's treated as a secret identity, which is something I wrote down as a note, and then they literally use that term <laughs> secret identity as like talking about her gender identity. And it's like I understand, yes, like, there are closeted trans people, like, mm-hmm. I, I know that all too well, and, like, that is a factor for many trans people, and, like, yeah, it, that's probably worth, like, discussing, but to have, like, to have a passing trans person who, like, isn't, is never, because Id- she's never identified as trans by anyone who does not know her, Mm-hmm. Or has like seen her naked, literally yeah. in some situations. Only, only Prince Robot is the only person who is not either told or sees her like sees her genitalia. Yeah, and that, and so to have that be such a thing, especially because in media, such a big element of the depiction of trans characters, especially trans women, is that they are like fooling you <laughs> and mm-hmm. like. Because, like, it goes back to, like, Ace... Well, like, I'm sure it goes back much further than this. But the one I always think of is, like, Ace Ventura. When it's, mm-hmm. like, there's a beautiful woman, but it turns out she's actually trans. And, like, that revelation is caused for, like, Jim Carrey to, like, throw up and, like, be so disgusted by the idea that he was attracted to a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah. And so that, like, whole idea... And the so I 
is so prevalent in media that it's like, I don't need another story where a character's transness is treated as a secret identity and something that they have to conceal. And I understand that that's a reality for many people, but it's also like, I don't need that with like a, a pretty, like, I guess she's not out in the sense that she does not like broadcast the fact that she's trans and mm-hmm. probably would rather keep it to herself. And is like, like the, the, the word privacy is sort of what is, used to talk about it which i think is like again that's a very valid thing but to have another depiction of a character where it is a secret identity is just like and then to talk about it in every issue is just like yeah and they they truly do talk about it in almost every issue that she like has a major scene it does come up relatively often i would say I noticed as well, I don't know who, who I don't know, you, you might be able to provide some perspective on this. I also noticed that oftentimes when she or other characters talk about it, they'll say specifically that she happens to be trans. Is that like a specific language thing? Or like, I it just, it kind of stuck out to me because it happened a few times of like that specific verbiage. I think the where that is going at least like i mean again like it's it's vaughn writing outside of his experience i don't know how much like research or consultation he did over the course of the set but like i think one of the big what's an important thing to many trans people is just like to have like their identity be legitimized like mm-hmm. so it's like rather than petrichor being seen as like a man that changed into a woman that she is seen as, like, a woman who is trans. Like, that, like, her her gender comes first, and then, like, the trans is, is like, like, she is a woman, and she is trans. Like, she mm-hmm. is not, like, someone, like, a man pretending to be a woman or anything of that sort. Right. I think is, like, that's where that sort of language comes from. Yep. I do think that you can feel Vaughn treading softly, <laughs> if, yes, if that makes definitely. sense. Like, I did, Petricor definitely compared to the conversation that we had last time is a fuller character and, and more fleshed out in these issues for sure. But I do think that you can feel that Vaughn is trying to be careful and like is not really, like you said, in his comfort zone or in his experience writing her. And I think where that most manifests is in the next arc where there is like the plot point of the transformation of everybody's bodies. I'm like, this is like, <laughs> let's hear from Petricor about this. Yeah. And there, <laughs> like this is, there is, there is a scene, but it's a conversation that she has with Hazel that is kind of like, it's, it's like an adult, like trying to get a kid not to like engage with something that she I think Petricor is kind of like, you don't get this and you're not like really in a developmental place to get this. So I'm kind of like broad brushing it, but I'm like, this seems like, I don't know, that that Prince Robot is just like, I'll convince Petricor. I'm like, okay, let's see it. <laughs> because this seems like a, a topic of conversation that Petricor as a trans character, like the experience of like literal recreation of her body is something that she would <laughs> not just be like, oh, okay. Or or maybe would be like, okay, but like would still probably have like some complex emotions about it. Yeah. And even like I think I think her saying okay to it is like also like like that is an element of her character as well. And I think that sort of goes back to 
what we talked about last episode where like that's a situation where her transness is so important to like her feelings on this subject and like the mm-hmm. way she would respond to that and so it's like that it's it's great because like you're putting her in like a specific situation where her identity is like a major factor in the way she yeah. feels about the thing and so and then like we get to see how she responds to that and like how that all plays out like among the different characters and i think that's like such a perfect use of a diverse character and i agree with you that like i would have liked to see see more of it because like <laughs> i think just because it would be such a complex thing for him to dig into and like he is not i i, I think he is aware that he is not like perfectly equipped to deal with that mm-hmm. well yeah i think i think that he sh- he pulls back from that one a little bit because he knows that in a way <sighs> Like, I, th- I think that he probably sees Petrichor as her own character, but is also, like, in a way, this is the only voice for the trans experience in this book. And so, to have a lot of, like, detail or a lot of fleshing out, like, her response to that situation becomes, like, a very individual thing that not every trans yes. person is going to respond to in the same way. So, I do wonder if there's an element of, like, I just, we can't get, I don't want to give this too much space because that starts to alienate some of the trans people who have identified really strongly with Petrichor and really value her. But I'm also sort of like, isn't it better to have like a rich and fleshed out trans character than it is to have a character who you have to sort of like pull back from those sorts of like, there's a rich storytelling opportunity and you have to almost like rein it in because you're like, I need this to be, I need this character to be like as many things to as many people as she can. Yeah, and I I didn't even see it that way. I didn't see it as, like, her sort of being, like, a figure to trans people and, that and like, that being the reason he shied away. I think the reason he shied away is because, like, A, he... I think part of it is, like, just, like, I don't have understanding of this experience, so I'm not going to touch it. And also, like, I don't want to have people read this and assume both, like... I don't want them to assume that this is the trans, like, this is, like, the trans community's opinion on this. Right. And I don't want or to Or even it. that, like, Brian K. Vaughn thinks that trans yes, people exactly. should or should not. Really, yeah, it's true that either way, and and maybe this is the argument that there should be more trans characters in Saga so that he can <laughs> provide yes. a, a multiplicity of experiences. But, yeah, I think you're probably right. And I would, I like, I don't know. Maybe it's asking him too much, like too much of him as like a cis writer to go out on the branch in that way. But I don't think it would have been a bad thing, even if it were like, I don't know, it it just does strike me as a situation that individual trans people would respond to very differently. And like some people would be all for some people might be strongly against. And like, I just think, yeah, it's, it's a complicated and interesting question posed by like the fantasy setting that I'm like, I think it's okay that you could have Petricor take attack and pet. It's not like Petricor doesn't make a decision. She does. But I, yeah, I just feel like there is an opportunity there to really like have dug into the character in a way that like, I I just would have I personally again maybe not my place to say also as a cis man but I wouldn't have had any issue with Vaughn 
sort of inhabiting the character and deciding like, what do I think that Petrichor would do? Even like recognizing that I have never been a trans woman and I don't know what it's like to be a trans woman. I can still potentially kind of dig into that, this character's, this individual's mindset and figure out how she would respond. Yeah. And that goes back to something that we've truly been talking about for like as long, almost as long as the comic has been running or as long as the show has been running, like the balance between writing sort of writing your own story and diversity, like sort of Mm -hmm. whether it's a a white male author's place to like, you know, tell those stories, but also at the same time, like there should be more like if you are going to be a white male writer, then like you should be including diversity and how to strike that balance. And I think that it is really challenging. And I think like, I think that it's understandable that he would like, look at he would like sit down and like look at a blank page for two hours and then just be like i'm not really gonna touch this like (laughs) and again like like you said like she does make a decision they do talk about it like it's not like it totally goes ignored but Mm -hmm. i do agree that like especially a character who has not like been explored in as much depth as we might like for like you know especially like how prominent she is like other than like goose i don't think that there's (laughs) A major like member of the team character who's been explored less and you know like like i said like i really like the way that petrichor is portrayed in these arcs like i like her role within the team and again maybe like maybe it's a thing where her transness doesn't need to be her old the only like element of her character that we talk about and like i i was so worried during this to go back to the the coffin <laughs> arc mm-hmm. i was super super worried that the way that this was going to pan out was that, like, somehow the, like, the, the bandit pa, family would find out. Yes, and that yeah. that would, like, become a plot point. And, like, I was so worried that that was going to, like, become a significant thing. And it never does, which, like, I, again, like, maybe that's damning with faint praise a little bit to be like, <laughs> he didn't it do never this. messes up. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, there, maybe there is something to be said for not messing up and for, like, yeah. and, like, like, we talked about this extensively last episode that her transness doesn't need to be her one like personality trait. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's really not in especially like, yeah, I think that was a big part of what we didn't like about her initial introduction is that like she, she is here to be like a visible trans person and talk about being trans. And in these arcs, she very much has more to her than that. Definitely. And and the more that the more that we see those other sides, the easier it becomes to like like then at that point like you're writing a character like who is a character first and then is able to like give input or like have unique storylines you know in the same way that like not to <laughs> not to compare transness to like being a different species but in the same <laughs> way that like Marco and Alana like have unique perspectives on things both because like they're from different like worlds literally and like that they yeah that they just had different upbringings and like all every like element of diversity that makes characters more interesting like mm-hmm. that they can they can weigh in on things when they become relevant but that they are like unique and like personal characters first that have like internality and then beyond that have like diversity elements that can allow them to weigh in on certain things right 
So, so yes, the coffin. <laughs> Let's get back to the coffin. It is. It's funny. It basically is a four issue arc and then two one offs. But because of the way that they like package the trades, it's like a six issue arc. But really, the coffin arc is over in four issues. As we kind of alerted to, so the death of Alana's baby imbues her with magic. Yes. Do you do you like this? I like the concept of it fine. I did feel the threadbare seams of the world building straining <laughs> mightily <laughs> when it happened where I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I, I guess I just didn't even realize that it was a question of whether or not Landfallians could do magic. Like, I oh, sort really? of figured, yeah, I kind of was just like, that must be like a state secret for Wreath as far as like, it's it's like their military technology basically right like they're not going to teach anyone from landfall how to do magic i didn't even occur to me that it might be like a genetic thing because typically like i I guess sometimes magic is a genetic thing and it depends on like sort of the universe but yeah for whatever reason it just hadn't occurred to me and then it was like by the way it is a thing but also if you have a baby and then the baby dies you might get imbued with magic powers for a little bit and also it's not language based you can just sort of scream and magic will come out and like not that i i sometimes think that certain subsets of fantasy fans get really obsessed with like magic systems in a way right. that does not really appeal to me where they're like it has to basically be science it needs to like make total internal logical sense and i'm like I don't actually really care about that, and I would rather read an interesting story than read an author explain how magic works in his universe or her universe uh, at length. But I am thinking specifically of Brandon Sanderson and Patrick Rothfuss, so <laughs> in those cases, his universe seems like but a real his universe move. To it talk does, about yeah, about it kind of, systems. it kind of does. So yeah, I all that to say, like, I'm not asking for a detailed explanation of how wreath magic works. And this does kind of feel like, here's a new rule <laughs> that, like, I don't know, it, it, it kind junk, of... Junk, 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 <laughs> on. Yeah, got it. Do here's, um, yeah, I don't, it, it just sort of was like, uh, hmm, I need, like, a conflict. Uh, here's, uh, this is now true about magic. <laughs> and, like, not that there's anything that contradicts it, but... Yeah, it is It is a very Vaughnian move to sort of, like, have a thought that like translates into like a rule of the universe mm-hmm. like and but i think also like that is one of the benefits of playing a little fast and loose with your world building mm-hmm. is that like you can introduce new concepts and not have them like totally break your brain like i mean like it feels like a reach it feels like a bit of like a narrative or a thematic contrivance to some extent i would definitely agree with that but like it does it didn't like i wasn't like that's bullshit or like yeah that would I- never happen Like I said, it didn't, it's not so much, like, I didn't read it and be like, this is dumb, or I don't like this, but I did read it and was kind of like, all right, I guess this is a thing now. (laughs) Yeah, and the same with, like, any other, like, twist about the world would, like, just come up and be like, you're like, okay, well, like, guess that's something that we have to deal with. And, like, I like it from a thematic standpoint that it's sort of, like, these, like, echoes of, like, the child that she never had. It's it's Mm -hmm. crazy to me that you thought he didn't think that like landfallians couldn't do magic i just like i figured they couldn't do magic because they had never like been taught how to do magic basically but then it's like why hasn't a lot of been doing magic this whole time you know 
Anyways, that's what I'm for. Nobody said it was easy. I hope you really clipped the mic on that one because it sounded <laughs> like you did on my end. Um, but yes, I like it from a thematic perspective, and obviously, it results in this uh, this ending reveal. So, the end of issue forty four, where the ending splash page is who we become come to know as Curdy, saying, "I'm your son, silly." What? What did you think this was when you read? Oh it? no! I, I, well, yeah, good, good question. Like the just the initial like here it is. Yes, because it ends on this splash of I'm right, your right, son, right. silly, and we don't see Hazel at any point, which I think introduces the possibility of like some different interpretations. So, what did you think had happened? Well, because it flows right out of a dream, I was like issue forty five, dream issue. What if Curdy had lived? Basically, right. So my my initial read was like, oh, she has this vestigial magic has caused her to like cast like not not like an alternate universe spell, but like she has changed Hazel into like the right. son that she, she has didn't like have. summoned Curdy somehow and like displaced Hazel. Yeah, that or like that she or like just like she has transformed Hazel into like like the reality she never warped had. her. Yes. Right. But as it turns out, it is just a, a, a an astral projection or a phantom projection, a forecast, as they call it, um, to sort of like simulate how life would have been with uh, if Curdy had lived. And so throughout the next couple of issues, we get like, I think one of the strongest elements of this arc and why I sort of talk about it getting stronger as it presses on is like these interactions, because <laughs> weirdly... Alana and Curdy don't have a lot of interactions. No, it's mostly about Hazel and Curdy. Right. And I think that that is like, I think that's a great move on his part. Like, I, I like their interactions. I like that Hazel sort of simultaneously understands the reality of the situation, but is also willing to accept it because she wants to have this brother and... Yeah, I just, I, I like all of the sort of like the inherent sadness of it, like the melancholy that sort of comes out from it, where it's like, I'm happy I get to see this brother, but ultimately I know it's not real, it's not going to last. And so like that, that melancholy is something that I really like in stories. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good, like, I think that it's a, it would be a very contrived way to sort of like resolve these thematic issues would be for, Alana to like have a conversation with Curdy where she like accepts his death almost. Yeah, it's almost better that she's like not unconscious. She, yeah, she's like she doesn't even really get the opportunity to like bid him off. She she like mostly lets him interact with um Hazel and then by the time that Hazel has to do her goodbye, she's been unconscious for like two issues. <laughs> yeah. And and it, like and maybe, you know, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of this fallout because, like, it starts so much being about, like, her feelings. And, you know, it's called the coffin because mm-hmm. that's something she says where she feels like she is a coffin, like, carrying around this dead child. Yeah. And so it would have been maybe nice to see more of her. But, again, that might be a situation of Vaughn being like, this isn't something that I can necessarily write, so I'm going to 
take more of a backseat or just not wanting it to be as contrived. Yeah, I do think it's also very present in sort of like the the conceit of the spell and works its, its way in thematically there where she's like, like the grief is literally killing her. Um, and And in some ways it is about releasing the image she has or the hopes that she had for who that child could be is is like the only way for her to survive in like a very literal way so i do like i think that thematically there is that element of like being the the grieving mother who is mourning a child that she never got to meet like it's baked in there at like kind of a fundamental level but it's true that in terms of like there she doesn't have any sort of like closure moment with Curdy where she is like, I need to let you go or anything like that, which I do think like it would be really easy for that scene to be bad. <laughs> so yes, exactly. I don't want to see that scene. And so I'm happy that it was maintained as subtext. Another thing that happens during this arc is you, you David personally mm-hmm. lose a very important character, which is the sweetest of boys, sweet boy. That's in this arc? Oh, that's yeah, so that's have, that's in the like later issues. Well, let's first No, because B... it's it's teed up beforehand, is it not? And then the issue 47 is when like that sort of yeah. So we we see it during the arc that there is this masked intruder. Oh, who, yes, that's right. Who yes. breaks in on the will, who shoots Sweet Boy in the head. Now listen. I'm a cat person. I mm-hmm. I don't like dogs generally. Given the choice between interacting with a dog and not interacting with a dog, I will generally choose not to interact with a dog. <laughs> However, interacting with my eyes with the sweetest boy, whose name is Sweet Boy, mm-hmm. and he does shoot darts out of his nose. With the snuffed. And listen, just because I don't personally feel strongly for any dogs individual or otherwise does not mean that I am looking to see anybody's sweet boy get shot in the head. So shot in the head. So it is tragic. I think that having him reappear as a throw rug is some swamp thing level Vaughn on display. (laughs) I did Uh, not. I, I, I think, are you sure you don't just feel that way because you're angry? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, I kind of was just like, I don't know, like how exactly how like uh, revolting do we have to make this villain? Like we already hate her for shooting Sweet Boy in the head. Like, <laughs> does this actually <laughs> like really add anything? Yeah, I mean, and again, like I almost I would compare this character. Oh, what's I am so bad at the names. What's who's the guy oh, who kidnaps the prince? The guy who kidnaps the prince. The robot. Oh, Dengo. Dengo. Yes, Dengo. I was I wanted to say. Dago or Deco, which are both wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think she is almost what Dango. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I forgot it instantly. I think remember, she just is... remember Dango stole my baby. Your number one right. best all time joke. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I think yes. I think she is a very Dango like figure in the sense that like it's, and I think a lot of what this arc is about to some extent is like sort of realize like a character having to reckon with like the impact that we don't see on the screen mm-hmm. in terms of like because yes we eventually get this so he has been kidnapped the will has by the character Ianthe who we eventually discover is one of the star-faced moles who <laughs> 
her future husband was one, one of, of the, the security guards on Sextillion. Who yes, one of Mama's son's goons who yeah. <laughs> was like thoroughly dispatched by the will. Yeah, like, the will killed him during the like false pretenses swap of Sophie when he he got Gwendolyn to convince Mama's son that she was uh, a wreather with her horns like sawed off. Right, wreather with her sawed. Yeah, sawed I off. I would say that she. Ianthe, this is is almost more of a whoever that government agent from Swamp Thing is figure in my mind. Insofar as she's like completely unsympathetic, completely irredeemable in any given circumstance, can just be relied on to say or do the thing that will most make the audience be like, "Can't wait to see this person get killed." <laughs> um, yeah, and those it's... characters don't interest me in the least yeah i i definitely understand that take and you know like she definitely is like i think i think in some ways it's almost nice like it because there are so many shades of gray in this book it's almost like refreshing to have a character just like a pure villain yeah pure like because like you wouldn't even necessarily call her evil because like like in it's easy to reframe this as like the will is like the worst guy and yes. like she is getting revenge on the worst well, guy yeah it's it yeah it is uh you definitely can see where the story would be like the ianthe protagonist revenge story yeah but she's just so bad <laughs> she is really bad especially like when i'm just like we already have like agent gale who to me is like a much more interesting version of the guy who is just like irredeemably bad and in any given circumstance can be counted on to do like the thing that the audience doesn't want him to do yeah i mean not to quote solomon lane here the leader of the syndicate but like it feels like that like she is like the fallout of all his bad intentions (laughs) again quoting solomon lane she like, is almost like part of a rogue nation in a way. Yeah, of course. She is she definitely executes Ghost Protocol. She definitely <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like yeah, like she is less like I I think that she is very unsympathetic and for that reason I think like I see her less as a character and more as like the personification of like everyone's actions catching up with them to some extent because like yeah because originally i thought she was a dango where like the joke is that like she presents herself as a supervillain but is actually just like an incredibly minor character who was like done wrong by the will and the whole joke is that she's just some random woman who is angry and like mm-hmm. is ultimately pretty like ineffectual but she is not ineffectual actually no she's not she and is- in like I, what I would say is one of the more subtle pieces of world building, <laughs> she's introduced as a diplomat, which over time we sort of generally piece together is sort of a euphemistic term that is used by the mole people. She's really like she's basically like a covert agent. Yes, I didn't quite, I wasn't quite tracking this uh, this part of it. So maybe you can. Uh... Well, it's yeah, it's like it's just between it. She introduces herself several times as like a diplomat or says like I'm on a diplomatic mission or blah, blah, blah. I think the most overt thing we get is um, uh, Doff's like old buddy who he got like that information that they needed for uh, on the will like way back when or when it like whatever that was. Anyways, when she when she says to him, I'm a diplomat, he's like, oh, you're a spook. 
and and that's sort of like when it becomes made perfectly clear that like how exactly how euphemistic uh calling herself a diplomat is but obviously we see um the over the course of her appearances that she certainly has like the skill set to catch the will by surprise and subjugate him knows her knows her way around a gun can assassinate sweet boys a torture device yeah she uh she has she's like, got yeah she's got some resources and she's got some skills that uh are not exactly diplomatic yes she has a magic vcr which is like a very funny <laughs> way because, because like a lot of so we're into like issue 47 now which is well hold like on let's said, let's let's wrap up the um uh, abortion town stuff quickly okay. um i mean what else is there like there's like this well the main thing is the the like we haven't talked about sir robot at all his plot basically is he's extremely overcome with guilt because he was high on fade away and basically put them in the situation that caused the the rocky takeoff which ultimately led to alana's miscarriage it plus like his weird raise my son for me and also i'm so horny for you (laughs) moment yeah we didn't um, even talk about the penis yeah there is a like a match cut basically where we see the <laughs> rocket ship flying through space in one panel and then prince robots throbbing erection in the next and uh, yeah it's, it certainly is there but anyways so he leads them to the abortion town planet basically because he's like this is pretty much on me and i'm going to do whatever i need to do to like help you take get be taken care of basically this is this is pretty much where like the prince robot redemption arc is completed in in as much as it ever is so he goes with Alana to abortion town, but after that doesn't pan out and they're told that they have to go to the badlands she basically kicks him out but he ends up going back to the rocket ship anyways to return uh, a D. Oswald heist novel, which we at this point have now seen all the characters reading his <laughs> basically his full catalog, which is always uh, in some ways it would be funnier to me if they were always and only reading a nighttime smoke. But it is always funny for me to see what new <laughs> heist novel any given character is reading. But anyways, yes. he goes back and ends up being able to help Petricor deal with the bandit family. Um, and possibly seeds some future uh, uh, consequence. Well, maybe not because he's dead now. I don't know. There, he like has that stare down with Kid that makes it seem like, oh, Kid might be back one day. But if he does, it will not be for uh, dear sweet Prince Robot, it seems. Anyways, uh, and then he and Petricor hook up. Yeah, which is like something that like, on the one hand sort of comes out of nowhere like i could kind of tell like at the start of that scene that, that yeah was it's it was very reading. as soon as the alcohol comes out in a situation like that you're like okay so these two characters are hooking up yeah especially two single characters yeah but also like i'm not mad about it like i mean we we get a little bit more of like an exploration of their sexual relationship later on yes and and like robots sexuality has been front and center pretty much since the beginning like he's literally always been since the first issue <laughs> yes literally since the first issue he's he's always been a very sexual character which is kind of you're, ironic because he's a right. robot and and his like psychosexual you know everything <laughs> yes, has, has always been part of like his 
how he processes his PTSD, part of his sort of like unpredictability. Just it, it has always been an important way of like kind of showing what is going on with him. Yeah, and also in during this arc, I think we sort of see that Petricor is also very horny, which like certainly you know, I'm I'm all for it. Let <laughs> characters be horny. Uh, let queer characters be horny. I'm definitely all over that, and I, I, I love the sex scene between them. Like, <laughs> I like that. Like, it's so strange and funny, but like in a way that feels very like true to their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sir Robot talks about his fluidity, whether that means like sexual fluidity or gender fluidity. It's not entirely clear, but like, just the like he's like. You know, I'm I'm open to things. Like I'm good with this. <laughs> Listen, I'm a <laughs> I'm a robot who can turn his body into pretty much whatever. So, <laughs> right. And so, I like it's it's I I like that. Like I like that. There's this like weird relationship that's like less weird because of their queerness and more weird because of who the characters right. are, especially because, Sir Robot, who because, is just like yes, Sir Robot is a TV headed android. Uh, with a deeply complex (laughs) psyche and sexuality his psychosexual uh business is a a major part of his character sure is and best of luck to you petricor (laughs) (laughs) oh i i think she's having a good time personally i think you're probably right anyways we can now move on to our two sort of interlude issues so you were talking about her uh, ianthi's magical vcr yes that this is like again, this is a very like Vaughnian thing where it's like I want this to do is, a flashback. Oh yeah, issue. this is like a hero's journey colon the will oh, edition. Definitely big time. Yes. But also like it's a very Vaughnian thing to be like, I'm not just going to show this and and I'm also not going to have it be like the framing device is like she's torturing him and he is like talking to her or like telling her what he wants to know. Mm-hmm. That she's like got her brain hooked up to Yes, she has a magical she has a magical VCR with yellow, white, and red plugs that are just <laughs> that are just stuck into the side of his head. I find that very funny. And then mm-hmm. yes, we get we get like a full sort of uh, origin story for him. Yeah, we sort of see we see a scene from his childhood where they have a visit the, from his dear uncle Steve. Yes, the letter who shows up and kills their dad because he's abusive. Good sequence. Uh, we, I liked that. I liked yes. this whole thing a lot. Yeah, I, I like this whole issue really. Um, I like his the letters chameleon. Uncle Steve is very cool when he says Sophie sent us a letter. It's extremely chilling. I like when he pulls out his big axe. <laughs> <laughs> I like the line "You oughtn't have done that." Yes, um, Hagrid energy. I like very much that we get the will. Like the the young Will, Junior Junior Billy, um, with the blood spattered all over his face and the like completely blank expression, which is like exactly the same face that he makes in issue four when he pops that guy's head like a watermelon to free Sophie. Where it's like Yeah, it's it definitely like as we were talking about as far as like both showing that he is like a bad guy, but also making him very sympathetic, it's like extreme violence and killing being inflicted on other people has like no impact on him and also there's like a certain like satisfaction in it for him when he like knows the person deserved it 
yeah, I think it's sort of like the like uh his sort of moral weird moral code is a very interesting like element of his character. And, and this this his... whole, yeah, this whole sequence is very revelatory about all the sextillion stuff as far as like the sexualization of a young girl being something that really sets him off, uh his like impulse to change her name from slave girl to Sophie um all starts to you know get you get some background there certainly some insight into into him yeah definitely um and then you know we get a scene with him in the stock where they we sort of see the start of their relationship Mm -hmm. we get a scene of him and Gwendolyn where we sort of start to see the start of their relationship and then that's that's pretty much it it's a weirdly if it's a short feeling issue because most of it is just like yeah selected scenes it's a it's a clip show in a way yeah and circumstances that like we hadn't seen but we were definitely aware of like obviously he and the stock had to start a relationship at some point he and Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn like we've seen them chilling and talking and stuff before Mm -hmm. I would say on a whole this is uh, a like origin story issue that I like pretty well like I would put this in the upper echelon of his sort of what we've called hero's journey issues that have recurred throughout Certainly, like, Y and Ex Machina, and this is sort of in a way that, like, you know, he's always implemented a fair bit of flashbacks. This is the first one, I'd say, in Saga that has been, like, a full-on, like, hero's journey issue. But, um, yeah, I like it. It it moves the plot forward. It gives us insight into the Will, who at other times can kind of be, like, a, an inscrutable character in some ways. Yeah, I I like that apart from the opening scene, it doesn't really try to be like revelatory in that way and it doesn't really try to be like uh like have those like emotionally hard-hitting moments. Like it I like that the scenes that they show are not like scenes of like the most important events in his life happening. Mm-hmm. Like they're more just scenes of like so like the start of things and they reveal his sort of thinking and like, you know, things like that. That it's more about revealing his character than it is about revealing his story origin story. Yeah. Which, and again, like, and you get that in the first few pages and it's like, yep, I like, that is definitely like a formative. That element tracks. His, yeah. <laughs> but then it's not like, and now he he's going into the Will Academy and he has a drill sergeant that tells mm-hmm. him this. Like, I think there's yeah. a very like hacky way to do that. And that he avoids that and, like, sort of does it in ways that are more oblique, but also, like, revealing about him, I, I do like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you lose a little bit of, like, the emotional punch of that to some extent. Um, but but I, I do like it as well, for sure, yeah. And the long and the short of that is that through her magical VCR, Ayanthi learns about the existence of Hazel and is like, never mind, I'm not killing you. I'm going to go get mine by getting Hazel. Yes, once again, she is just sort of like a chip that is value that like people understand will be valuable to them yes. in some form or fashion. She she basically is like, this will make me a hot shot on my planet, which is all I'm really concerned about. And then we get a, an unusual issue, I would say, with uh, with Goose and Squire and uh, Upshur and Doff. Yes, the triumphant return of Goose. And baby Goose is back. He's speaking in the third person more than ever. <laughs> he really does. Like, 
he really does start speaking in the third person like a lot. 60% of the time. <laughs> and I'm fine with that, ultimately. Um, Listen, you know, Goose can pretty much do what he wants as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I mean, speaking of outfit changes, Goose gets an all-time outfit update between oh. this issue and the subsequent ones. I mean, like, he never really, he's never slacking when it comes to the outfits. I love his fisherman's. Uh, literally in this case. No his, slacks on this guy to, <laughs> so true, to, to be spoken of. I love his cable knit sweater and his big axe. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I mean, like, we'll, we'll talk about it now. Like, his Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, his is, Hawaiian shirt is, is uh, next level as far as wardrobe goes, certainly. Um, this issue, what do you think of this issue? Uh, I think, I think I maybe like what this issue is attempting a little more than I like the execution of it. Like it, it, it it is a very, it's a weird issue for Saga. It's a one-off story. It's not really connected to, it's neither connected to the larger plot nor to any of the main characters. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more just like it's really just like a character issue for Squire, mm-hmm. where like I, yeah, I think that it might become something that once the book continues and concludes becomes a more important issue in retrospect. Because right now we like Squire, it has like barely been on page at this point. Like he's almost yeah. not a character. Yeah, I think I think probably he this issue happens because he is conscious of what's coming yes. and probably wants to like make Squire into more of a character in anticipation of him being thrust into a bigger role in whatever's coming after. He definitely, I think we can assume will be a lot more central when the series resumes. Um, but this is sort of just a story, a little adventure story that is based on something that uh, D. Oswald Heist says to baby Hazel uh, while reading her fairy tales at one point. Yeah, he says basically that most children's stories are about um, a child who breaks the rules, then goes on an adventure, goes home, and is supposed to learn that um, the rules are there for a reason, but also the lesson that should be taken away is that you should break the rules as much as possible because who doesn't like to have adventures? Does he break the rules in this issue? That was the question for me though. I mean I guess like he doesn't he doesn't shoot the uh the thing ultimately which is sort of like and like you know it's ultimately a conversation you know the, what the whole issue is about is like he's starting to reckon with his relationship with his father and and who his father is outside of kind of who squire has experienced is a big yeah, part and, of it I would say and more broadly, it's a, I think it's about, like, the implications of war, like, the things people do during war, the act of killing, and sort of the, like, psychological and soul ramifications for, like, what killing someone does to you, and, like, the idea of, like, necessary killing as part of war. I mean, it's in many ways, it's also a goose issue. It is. We get yet another hint that goose... <laughs> Has an extremely violent and bloody past. Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, I 
I truly can't express how much I love Goose. Like, I love this angle of development for him. Like, I love that he, like, has this history that he, that, like, has clearly affected him, but, like, has affected him in the way that's, like, he looks back with, like, great pain and regret, but also, like, it has led him to realize that, like, a life of, like, solitary peace is achievable, which, like, that's also perfect because he is now on D. Oswald Heist, like, he is, like, D. Oswald Heist's friend because mm-hmm. D. Oswald Heist has also realized that, like, a life of solitary peace is, like, the only, like, morally acceptable <laughs> life that one can lead. I mean, Goose's his sister passed from the lung disease. <laughs> Goose, is, Goose is quite a character, but, yeah, they, they have this long conversation. It is mostly fleshing out Goose and and sort of giving us some groundwork on Squire. He doesn't kill an invisible monster to get them food that would a really potentially cool looking invisible monster. Yes, well, it's because he can only see like its nervous system. Yeah, uh, have you seen the uh, the foreign alien poster? No. Okay, you you keep talking. I'm going to send you a picture. Sure, I'll uh, I'll. I mean, there's not much more to say about this particular issue. By the time they get back, um, Alana and Marco and. Uh, Sir Robot uh, and Petrichor are back. They have brought food, so Frendo's life is spared, uh, and everybody's meeting everybody and having tearful reunions. Marco bigs, gives Goose a big hug. It's beautiful. Um, and then we get, I guess it's technically a reunion um, between Hazel and Squire. Yeah, they know each other. Now we do get one of the most troubling revelations uh in all of saga which is that fidget spinners are in this universe (laughs) yes i i I sent you the picture by the way uh i saw in a future letters column that there was a huge outcry over the fact that fidget spinners were invoked in this issue (laughs) like very literally just like someone just says like hazel says to squire like do you know what fidget spinners are basically Mm -hmm. and like as as BKV puts it, like he was like, I thought those people would have dropped off in the first issue when I talked about smartphones automatically updating apps. And it looks like to be it, to be fair to him, it's like yeah, that is a very BKV thing to like to invoke. This it's, is it's not very on subtle. A completely different level from the cell phone thing for me. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, that's weird, but I ultimately did not really like care too much about it. Um, yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like, I I guess I can see where this might be the straw that broke the camel's back for some people, possibly, um, or, or just was something that they really didn't like. It's not so much that, like, it does, it does annoy me quite profoundly, I cannot lie. Um, not because I'm like, I don't know, there's just something about it being like, such a specific like you can you can basically like extrapolate how cell phones and apps would exist in another world it's not like that's like whoa can't imagine that like how that would emerge there having a fidget spinner (laughs) and having it be called a fidget spinner there's just something about it too that like i'm sure when he wrote the issue it was like quite a topical reference at the time. But I remember like, I remember when this issue came out and the discourse around it, because I was like, man, like this joke is already kind of like past its expiration date. 
I can't imagine how this is gonna like age. <laughs> basically, yes, it is like, and it has not aged well. <laughs> yeah, it dates itself to within like a six month window yes. when it was written because it references like such a hyper specific thing. Like it, it would truly be like if if like issue fifty five of Saga came out and they were like, "Have you watched the uh, whatever that soap opera thing is called?" Like. Have you seen that new Tiger King show? <laughs> like, it's and this extremely... is something that we've never done. We've never made a reference to something that's very current that dates our episodes extremely precisely. So we're coming from an extremely high moral ground here that we can say, Brian, bad, not good. We don't like it. And Brian, if you haven't seen uh, season 41, episode three of Survivor yet, it just came out this week. And it's <laughs> worth a watch. <laughs> Brian, um, I'll be going to see No Time to Die uh, in a few hours, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, did you look at the picture I sent? I did look at it. It it gives me like Mars Attack vibes, also for some reason. A little bit, yeah. So this is to, for those who are not in this Zoom call. Uh, this is a Polish alien poster. It's it's gone around the internet a few times. I imagine many people have seen it, but that sort of depicts this like crazy nervous system. Um, it also includes. The great subtitle. To, do you know about this? No, I, I think I, I think actually. Uh, so I have a copy of the of Alien on 4K Blu-ray. Not to brag, mm-hmm. uh, which includes the French title, which also has this uh, this extra subtitle. Oh, oh, uh, whoever wins, we lose. Precisely, but no. Uh, and it also appears in this poster, which uh, which I am taking to translate as the eighth passenger. Oh, I or like the, that. Or in the case of this Polish poster, the eighth passenger of the Nostromo. But like, just the just alien colon the eighth passenger. I think is a great. That is title. a good. That is a good subtitle. <laughs> that is a good subtitle. Anyways, so yeah, the fidget spinner. It's a know. lot. It's it's one of those things like where I'm like I appreciate that you. Um, like the creative freedom that you have of not working with an editor. I like <laughs> listened to an interview recently with you where you were like, I'm never working with an editor again. I do just sometimes read things where I'm like, editors also have a role. <laughs> I just want to give my top five goose lines from this issue. Okay, just lay them on me. Okay, number five. I'll say number five. Well, hold on, let me. <laughs> I'll just go in chronological order. Uh, well, number one for sure is no matter what, Goose will always be there for you because so true, King. <laughs> number two, for what it's worth, I don't think folks got to get hitched to be happy. Old Goose has always kept his own company just fine. <laughs> number three is when they are facing down the, the, the dread space knot is what this uh, this creature is called, this invisible creature. And then, so when Squire is aiming down his sights at uh, at the dreadnought, Goose says, "All you gotta do is let go." Very profound. I guess that there's only four lines really, but that this one is just truly, truly heartbreaking. Is as they're walking back to camp, I told you I'm not cross, just sad about what's gotta happen next. <laughs> with the, yes, implying we didn't mention this, but that that Frendo will be killed for their sustenance. Sweet, sweet Frendo. But fortunately, that is averted by the arrival of uh, of this of the family. Yes, praise be. Uh, but yes, please, please go on into our, our final <laughs> yes, arc. Yes, we move on into the final arc. Opens with a great cover and then a crazy splash. Yes, 
both both true. Yes, it opens with this uh, this drost. I believe uh, the drost effect is the term for it, where it's a TV within a TV within a TV. Sort of Mad Men vibes to this. Mm-hmm. Well, because he's it's, falling. Yeah, it's an alien in a suit delivering breaking news that we're all completely foot, but it's cut off. For, and thank goodness that they censored that profanity so that we could <laughs> open open the book and then immediately get a splash page of the a naked will with a flaccid penis. Mm-hmm. Uh, just well, I mean, it would be way worse if it was not a flaccid penis. <laughs> I guess so. It's a matter of opinion, I suppose. I, I mean, um, if he's going to be naked, <laughs> yeah, this is this is extremely funny to me. I don't know, like if you sort of caught this that that he's will, called Slave Boy, that too, but that the will is now like transformed back into his oh, skinny self. Yes, because <laughs> she the, makes him drop and do a thousand push-ups every time <laughs> he makes her mad. <laughs> it's extremely funny to me. That, like, like a, a very like intentionally humorously contrived situation that like in <laughs> however like minimal amount of time has passed the will is back to his normal will self yes. because he has been forced to do thousands of push-ups <laughs> i will say like i was doing a bit of back and forth flipping just be- like i was just interested to like mostly see how fiona staples style sort of like developed over time because it's not often that you have one book where you can like just go back in time six years and compare an artist's style against itself like that but i will say that like he's definitely still sort of like chunkier than his original kind of like model which was like pretty pretty like sleek yeah he's more he's more bulked up for sure but whether that is like like if if they started over again from the beginning i feel like he would have been more sort of like solid like this right from the start right Yep, for sure. Uh, yeah, so we get that. Like, so he is the naked slave of Ianthe and is like leading them, leading her to the the, the team. We'll say um, we get the aforementioned robot sex scene. Mm-hmm. We get what else do we get? Oh, the, this whole idea that like, um, well, Upshur up sure th- and Doff are in the squad now. That's that's he, important sure. to note. Yes, and we get this conversation about the transformation spell, uh, which obviously, like we already talked about previously, becomes a pretty significant part of the the B plot to this story, yes. I guess. The offer is, let us tell your story and we'll transform you into like members of our species so that you can live in anonymity on Flotsam, Jetsam, Flotsam, I one of the two. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, it's but it's Jetsam. one of those. It's Jetsam, yeah. Yeah. Um and, and like be at peace. And they basically are like, no, we we like basically like Hazel's like body in a way is sort of like the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, and again, like this is sort of I think this is also like in sort of an interesting way to hearken to trans themes uh in a way that I think is intentional. That like Yes, the, the the phrase "our daughter's biology isn't a liability; it's a gift." I think is ref- definitely reflective of a way that uh, many trans people see their bodies that as like it's not like something that needs to be changed or things like that. So I I did take that as a as a, a direct reference to that, and I thought like that's a like and again like <laughs> if you have sort of if you're presenting 
the two sides of that. I think that is a very interesting discussion. And like, so like he does, he gets like 85% of the way there. Mm-hmm. He like, other than having like a full like out and out discussion of it, he, he gets there. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. I mean, does this really factor in this sort of fight between Hazel and Squire? Um, only in so far as she is accusing him of having stolen uh, Punk Conk and he denies knowing anything about it, but he has in fact stolen Punk Conk and often converses with Punk. Yes. His, his new friend. Um, and also because that scene we see goose with his open butt flap yeah in his goose is in pajamas, a onesie his pajamas. <laughs> i think we talked about his pajamas last time probably he's in footy pajamas he left uh he left the bottom flap open you know like one does goose cannot argue and then yeah so basically the the way everything's working out is like well so alana and marco decline and Robot goes, overhears and goes to Upshur and Doff. And I think we are meant to suspect that he's like, I'll tell you their story for the same deal. Um, but instead, he reveals that while he was on uh, the abortion town planet, he learned about the uh, conspiracy between Wreath and Landfall to destroy Fang and is offering evidence in exchange for the same deal unrelated to the Marco and Alana story. Yes, that he uh that he like learned from a prostitute. Yes, which is a funny uh a funny little part. But yeah, so so Marco and Alana they're mostly chilling in this arc, I think. Yeah, pretty well at the as we'll learn at the f- very beginning of the next issue, they're um rekindling their sex life for sure. Certainly, there is a an explicit sex scene. I mean, I guess like most of the characters are chill. Like the main focus of the first couple of issues is uh, you have Sir Robot's whole thing. You have Squire, who I think is I, I don't know how how exactly is he sort of becoming afraid of the idea of like impending violence or no? Because he, so it culminates with him running away. It does. And I think it is a combination of a few factors, one of which is I think he is like kind of scared of and kind of mistrustful of Sir Robot for a lot of reasons. Um, The most obvious, of course, being when he like actually attacks Squire briefly. Um, But I think that he is also still sort of like plagued by um, I think it was dengo that told him that his father had killed people including women question mark i think that's right or no he's too young for that who told him that Uh, someone with a human face i don't remember exactly when it happened certainly like that's a part of the conversation that he and goose have in the uh in that one-off issue they sort of someone yeah someone has told him that uh that basically like sir robot has a has a dark and bloody past which he's troubled by and he also seems to feel like their role in the robot kingdom like he's he he feels like he should still be royalty and he needs to go back and assume his rightful place as um the princeling of the robot kingdom yeah and also and the impending idea because um to go back to upshur and doff like this transformation offer is also offered to Prince 
to Sir Robot, and he does want to take it right. along with Patricor and Squire. And he has and so accepted on Squire's behalf without really consulting him. Yes, he says basically like Squire will do as he's told, but that might not be the case. Um, so that's that's the big things that get focused on early on in the arc. Um, a more the more pressing sort of <laughs> issues of the arc come into effect around issue fifty one, which is when Ianthe sort of shows up on the scene. Okay, we've seen her a couple times throughout this. Like she is, she's like we said, she's in control of the will. She has like a slave collar around him. And it is, of course, the Will who told Esquire that uh, Prince Robot was a Batman. Right. Of course. Of course. Of course. And he's something of a Batman. Sure. Yeah. Certainly at the um, end of uh, number 50. Right. And so the uh, the big uh, the big moment that sort of kicks everything off is that Upshur, right? Upshur is the oh, writer. Doff, Doff, Doff. Yeah. Doff gets ambushed by Ianthe and the Will. He has his moment of bravery where he attacks Ianthe. She shoots him, but not before he has gotten to the the remote controlling the Will's slave collar and has freed him. So now the Will is also a a player in this. And so that's sort of like, that's sort of how the big climax, you know, like we've talked about this truly many times, that it's, (laughs) it's the Vaughn, all the characters have now converged, and so this yep. has set the stage for like a huge consequential confrontation. Battle. Yep. Um, starting in issue fifty-two, which has perhaps the best cover of the series. Everyone's in the pool. <laughs> Goose is naked, wearing heart-shaped sunglasses. <laughs> uh, Petricor is chilling on a floaty. Prince Robot is swimming. It's it's a great cover. And then there's sort of this looming darkness below. Yes, well. a mysterious uh, something down there. Yes, so uh, deuces to the world for Doff, good death, but again, mostly like cool last uh, heroic gesture. Don't really feel yeah. anything. Well, but I, it, I which actually, again, you know, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel anything. It is like I think that not to we did spend a long time harping on the Hazel death, but around the Isabel death, mm-hmm. I always confuse those two. But I think like I think the fact that Doff's death is arguably feels like more emotionally impactful than Isabel's death is probably like an indication of some issues with Isabel's death. Cause I do like this moment for Doff, like as someone who, especially as someone who like but, a huge yeah. part of their arc has been based around like fear yeah, and, and not wanting to taken captive like, by the will as well. Like fear directly yeah. associated with the will. Yeah. And not wanting to like take the big dangerous step and like put, themselves in jeopardy yeah i think that that it's a cool moment for doff and like for a guy who is ultimately not important <laughs> that important to the story oh it's yeah. like in terms of like characters yeah that he like gets that moment it is and, it is like, a good like kind of closure of the the thematic arc of like they have they have continually both like kind of towed the line between like playing it safe and watching out for themselves and doing the things that like they think need to be done from a journalistic standpoint. And then he's basically put in this position where it's like you, you are again, we, like I kind of alluded to this arc is in a lot of ways about consequences and it's like, you're about to make a decision and no matter what you do, it's going to have consequences. So are you going to do the thing that makes your life easier in some way and like kind of may, is, is more comfortable for you or are you going to do the thing that is going to benefit the people who you care about 
and he does indeed do that. Although, of course, freeing the will solves one problem and uh, and kind of opens uh, <laughs> another one. Yes. They, yeah, so they discover, they don't even know about Ianthe at this point. They just discover no, or the that Squire, will. yeah, they just discover that Squire has run off, uh, but still get kitted out with weapons, <laughs> mostly yes. Goose. They open the no-no cupboard. <laughs> yes, Goose has, he has Squire's bow and arrow. He has the sword from the march. He has the rifle from... Uh, Fang, mm-hmm. and he also has a pistol, which I think is Alana's like shock yeah, pistol. her like heartbreaker thing. Yeah, so he has like he has like every he's, uh, piece he's of geared weaponry. up for sure. Yeah, yes. So Squire has run away, which is all they know. Like they don't know that Ianthe is there. They don't know that the Will is there. They don't know that Doff is dead. They're just going out to look for Squire, who gets himself in trouble, but is rescued by none other than Ianthe. Yes, and then at the same time, uh, Sir Robot makes contact with the Will. Uh, they sort of have this stare down, and I, I guess the implication—the implication—is that uh, Sir Robot is going to assist the Will in like capturing Hazel. Yes, and so so they're sort of like <laughs> they're sort of reverting to the original mission, which is an interesting moment because like those the Will and Sir Robot were two very closely linked characters early on. Although they were always at odds in a way because Prince Robot was working for Landfall and the Will was contracted by Reese. Right. But they were both like sort of, they were the two main like hunters right, yeah. of Marco and Alana early on. So it's interesting that like when they sort of come back into contact with each other, they revert back to sort of their original forms, which are hunting Marco and Alana. They want the kid. Different motivations now. Obviously, Sir Robot was sort of motivated by patriotism before. Mm-hmm. And now is is purely a creature of self-interest in some ways. And and to an extent always was. Like, he, his search was motivated in part by patriotism, but also it was like you can't come home to for, like, the birth of your son until you finish this, like, Marco and Alana mission. Yeah. So, like, yeah, the, it's... It, it's just very interesting to me that it's like they sort of have this like turn like back towards their that like not that I'm not saying this in a criticism way, but like that like the almost like their development is undone when they sort of realign and like it's almost like you could say like their true natures come out again. Yeah, they're old, they're old selves. Well, I think it's more so a setup to show us like in a way the ways in which they've changed. Like he he proposes a return to sort of the original terms, but ultimately, like the will says no. And even when Marco like hears Prince Robot say like the words with his own ears, he doesn't believe him because of like how he now knows and understands Prince Robot. So yeah, I think and I think, it, I think it's definitely implied that Prince Robot was lying, although we never know for sure. No, we don't. Um, and I th- I do think it's like, I, in a way, I kind of think like he doesn't even know. Like I think he said what he had to say to stay alive in that moment, and uh, like might have meant it in the moment, but whether or not he would have actually done it if like push had come to shove, I think we're meant to believe at this point that he wouldn't have yeah 
And then, so Ianthe shows up with Squire and a gun held to his head. We get a similar moment as Doff, where Upshur is the one to be the be the savior here. He fires these, basically like a signal flare mushroom. Mm-hmm. Speaking of mushrooms, once again, coming in clutch. <laughs> uh, and like blows her face off. And then steals her gun and shoots her. And then this, I, I really like this scene where like, she is basically like ordering Upshur to kill her. Mm-hmm. And he declines, which is, uh, again, like, that becomes very important in the next issue. And and even in this issue, like, the whole does, idea of, Does like, he decline? I, and I think in a way we don't... I, yeah. We, we, don't we see, just... That's, like, that's the last we see of it. I do think we can assume that that was the case. But uh, we don't really like, see them like again. The, the idea of, like, goading someone into violence in that way, like... And sort of like the, the the desire to have violence beget more violence becomes a very important idea. Right. Um, even like in the next couple of pages, because obviously this issue ends with Prince Robot being decapied yep. by by the will. I yes. RIP. Like I said, like I don't know if he is gone for good. I think that especially like with a character that's a robot, there's always going to be some way to like have them work back in, even if it's not like in a sort of active part of the the whole thing. But from from a narrative standpoint, I think I think killing Marco and leaving Prince Robot creates interesting things. Like I think that that sort of the family dynamic becomes interesting mm-hmm. because Alana sort of or uh, Hazel rather in her narration sort of alludes to the idea that Squire becomes her brother, right? But that's I mean. With with Prince Robot dead, like Squire, you know. Yeah, yeah, but but sort of like that that sort of like newly formed family unit, and you have this sort of not entirely resolved thing between Alana and Prince Robot, where like you know they had their sort of weird sexual energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's it's entirely on Prince Robot's end. Like I wouldn't even say yeah. it's like a relationship, but no. like that there there is this sort of thing still hanging in the air. I think it's more interesting to keep him around and have him like and have that be like the impetus for new plot threads. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe he's gone. What do you think? Um. Yeah. I. I'm in the same boat. Like. I think if they decided they wanted to bring him back, the fact that he is a robot and like we don't really understand anything about their physiology certainly leaves like a clear avenue to do that. And that said, I feel like if it doesn't happen, like if he's not back by the end of the next arc, I don't think it's going to happen. Basically. <laughs> Like, it seems like the kind of thing where he, like, Vaughn has always been extremely adamant that this is a comic where, like, the deaths are for real and, you know, dead is dead as he has titled several issues of several different comics and an episode right. of Lost. <laughs> um, that That's a philosophy that he has always seemed to be extremely committed to um, for Saga. So, I I do think it is something where either he... Like, he could bring him back later and it would be surprising, et cetera, et cetera. But I think just knowing that that's the ethos, it seems to me like something that he's either going to, like, introduce the avenue for Prince Robot to come back right. immediately that, like, so that it's, that the like... the next arc would be, like, we have to find his microchip or whatever. Yeah, so that, so that it, like, establishes kind of right away that, like, he's not actually dead. 
because of like robot physiology or else anything that he does down the line is going to have sort of like a retconny feel. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, like, this is like, it's hard because like I do, it is obviously a huge trope in comics and like something that happens all the time. But like, that is one character where it feels like, like I would be okay with like, it makes and again, like, like it, the, the, you can project the ways in which he could come back and it would not necessarily, like, uh, this is maybe up for debate, but it would make internal sense, at least in the world of the book. Like you would believe that like, that makes sense. Yeah. And beyond that, I think that there's like some narrative and maybe even, I mean, I, I don't know what the thematic implications would necessarily be, but I think there is some narrative sense in like reintroducing him into the fold and then like you know like there's the interactions with his son there's the thing like like we said like there's other narrative threads that you can pick up on there and so like having him come back and sort of be dealing with like the ways in which characters have changed feels very like on point for that character but you know like we'll we'll see which is again like it's strange that we've been talking for so long about it's like how like we're, we're a little hot and cold on this book like mm-hmm. we think it's good overall we really like some parts we dislike some parts i'd say but then like this obviously i mean this is a huge <laughs> end to an arc but like yeah there's there hasn't been an end to an arc that has made me want to see what happens next more <laughs> than this yeah i don't think there's like, there's any denying that especially the last two issues are extremely good, extremely compelling. Making you want to read the next issue has always been like a Vaughn strength. And I think knowing as they did when they were working on these, that they were going into a long hiatus. I think that he definitely like brought his a game as far as like both telling an extremely effective story in this arc. And also like, he knew that it was going to need some like real narrative oomph to sustain like interest in going into by far the longest break that the book had ever taken. Yeah. And I, I don't even think I realized that like, so the, the pauses, cause I was like, what I thought was sort of the way that it worked out was like, yeah, like when they started, they would like take a break, like for like a couple of months and then slowly, like the break started getting longer. And so I thought like, by this point, it'd be like, oh, like this, like these ones came out in 2016, and then the next six issues came out in 2018, and then since then, like we haven't heard from them. But it, it really is just like they take pretty consistent, like six months, month breaks between arcs. No, it's it's they might have done one or two that were longer, but the pretty like fixed schedule was six months on, three months off. So there were like a couple where they went a little longer than three months on the hiatus, but yeah, pretty much since. Since the first arc, that has been the schedule so that they could make sure that they never needed a fill-in artist and they had staples doing the art for the full series. Yeah. And so, like, I I was kind of surprised that it got, like, it really is just, like, they were quite consistent. And then since for over three years now, we have just not heard anything. Yes. We can can talk about that uh, shortly. Let's just wrap up uh, briefly. I don't really have much to say because like story-wise there's not really a lot that happens like it's 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 one big fight essentially the last issue and we've already talked about like you know the confrontation between Marco and the Will and uh Sir Robot on the hilltop 
culminates in Prince Sir, Sir Robert getting his head ripped off. Staples is uh, is a <laughs> it's it's really like kind of a Fiona Staples show. I feel like these last two issues, um, she she is like I'm not sure what it is. It's like a lot of very like clean grids to the panels so that the storytelling flow to me feels very smooth and just like I don't know. I, I she started strong, but I feel like these last two issues, especially where she has to do a lot of like carrying the narrative she's just like really on one and there's a lot of really cool shots like um the stare down between the will and prince robot where you can like see the will's reflection in his screen is really cool the the last page of 53 where like the will rips his head off but his own head is kind of like positioned in the same spot so that it's like the, the just like the overlap of their figures in that way so that they're almost like one figure is very cool to me and then again in 54 like there's some narration there is some dialogue it's not a silent issue but staples is carrying like a lot of the the thrust of of this last issue for sure yeah it's it's all great and another thing that we didn't mention is that Ianthe has a really cool ship. Uh, yes, the jellyfish. It's, like a, it's, it's a jellyfish with like a Louvre glass pyramid on top of it, yes. which is just really cool. And also like create like the the setting, it, it being the setting for this big fight is very cool. The, yeah. like, we both see these like very cool shot. Like I love the, the panel of the jellyfish like shooting up into the air and you have like the like sea spray and like yeah. those kind of like that's a very like only Fiona Staples could create that because it's like that like melding of the digital art of like that like mist effect yeah with like the inherent art like under like the liner and stuff like that I think that's like a super cool moment and then like again on the interior you have them fighting this like weird house mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> yes it is uh it is extremely cool that is basically the plot of the issue they fight their fight moves from the cliff into the ship, which blasts off into outer space. They go back and forth. Marco gets the upper hand eventually by like melting the Will's prosthesis and then headbutting him and knocking him out. He's about to decapitate him with his shield, but uh, reconsiders, drops the shield, moves to the window where he is just sort of like taking in like the weird and wonderful beauty of this crazy uh this crazy world we all live in except <laughs> it's not a world that any of them live in but just sort of like the natural beauty of the universe at large at which point he is um uh stabbed through the chest by the will with a weapon literally of it's his like, own making yeah. <laughs> uh, yes a very a very like metaphorical uh demonstration of what he has kind of been all about since the beginning of like any act of violence begets more violence whether today or in the future at some point um and this is certainly like both in the very immediate way in which he literally just like forged that weapon for the will through the violence of their fight and the ways in which like the conversation that he has with upshur about how like that that wreath soldier who's like handy cut off way back when is in some ways like what has led them to this moment 
yeah like like we've been saying all episode long um lots of lots of stuff about consequences and long-term consequences especially in this and then we get a nice little vignette of um i think what we can probably assume is was basically like the last conversation that marco and hazel had where she says she doesn't want to have kids and he says that's fine as long as you're nice to everyone you meet because that's, the that's point of being alive. yeah or the, the hardest, hardest part, part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean it's it's a bit of a layup I will say. Like <laughs> it's not it's like, not tough to make the death of your like one of your three main characters impactful. It's true. Yeah. I mean like really really two main characters. Like obviously Hazel her role magnifies as time goes on, but yeah. like for the first like for a significant amount of the book, she has mostly been like, basically everything up until the prisoner. Like she can't really even speak in in full sp- yeah. sentences until that she point. She doesn't have much agency. She doesn't have much of a viewpoint of her own. So like for for the majority of the book, it's about Marco and Alana. And so like it's it's not it's easy for that to be devastating. But and like he just he hits like pretty the pretty classic beats. Like I I always love the moments where the pre death flashback. Yes, where you juxtapose that, like, moment of violence or, like, even, like, another super impactful moment or, like, an intense moment with a more, like, peaceful flashback. Like, that juxtaposition just always works for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I liked it, obviously. (laughs) Like, yeah. And again, like, like we were talking about before, like. The echoed echoed narration is really what, uh, what hits the home run for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. And then you, like, you. Uh, do you have the letters pages in your I editions? I do not, no. So the so there's there's no letters page in the that fang issue we were talking about. And then so the speaking of <laughs> you sent me a, a video earlier this week of someone saying to be continued, saying that it was IP <laughs> infringement. Uh, the title of the saga letters page is called To Be Continued. I did, so you always... I did hear that mentioned in a letters column as well and thought about once again telling you to uh, contact our IP lawyers. Yeah. So you always have the, the To Be Continued header at the top like with the address information for the letters page. So for this issue, you have the, the splash page of Marco dead with the not everybody does uh, narration over it. Read and then you go old. to... Yes. And then you go to the the letter, like it has the layout of the letters page, but the the part where like the letters text is, is just blank. So it's like the to be continued header in red mm-hmm. with a blank page underneath. And then like he continues, he doesn't do any letters. He just talks about like the, uh, the forthcoming intermission and things like that. Yep. But, uh, but yes, he, so he does the, the similar thing again, where it's like, he gives you the breather page before he actually, uh talks to you and and to be continued with a blank page yeah that's that's like a good uh i like any kind of format play like that where it almost extends the letter page into part of the story in a way <laughs> yeah it's a it's a cool sort of metatextual way to like play with the structure for sure yeah but yeah and then you know you have you have brian saying yes marco really is dead you have him saying there's going to be what they call an intermission. And uh, so he doesn't talk about the idea of the the 108 issue series. Is that something he talked about early? So, uh, no, it's kind of been like inferred and then repeated a lot. 
but basically around, I'm not sure if he says it there or if he says it in like interviews that he was giving around the time, but he does say basically like, we're at the halfway point right now. And so people were like, that means literally 108 issues. I don't think that he has ever been like, we'll be doing exactly 108 issues. But I think that people have generally, based on sort of like the six issue structure that they've been using from the get go and him saying 54 issues is the halfway point, have have just concluded that that means if not exactly 108, then roughly 108. So yes, he, he basically just says that they hope they will be continuing the series for many more years to come and that this is the the intermission. So yeah, they say he says for at least a year. Mm-hmm. So like it was obviously it has stretched for a long time, but I don't <laughs> yeah. think I realize because like a lot of times comics hiatuses will like just happen without much fanfare. Yeah. Like it'll just be like the book's not out, the book's not out, the book's not out. And so like there was some warning here. Obviously it extended I assume much longer than he had anticipated. But like there, there was a tee up that there would be a very long break. Yes, in he did. He did say it will be at least a year, uh, and wisely did not <laughs> cap that. Yeah, so that that's basically all the discourse that there is to be had about <laughs> Saga in the intervening years. Is that like because Vaughn is like kind of media averse and like sort of private in a lot of ways and staples also is like you don't get a lot of like updates on this front they both have instagram accounts staples is like not really active at all vaughn is probably more active but especially like over the last year has been more focused on like promoting why stuff but it's like all anyone at this point really talks about with regards to saga is like when is it coming back the hiatus is so long there's like inevitably a comment under any <laughs> instagram post they make that's like is saga ever coming back staples has not given an interview that i can find since the hiatus started which doesn't surprise me because it seems like as much as like vaughn was supportive of taking a longer break that it was mostly like a Fiona led initiative in terms of like she she recognized that she was starting to burn out and she needed some time off. He thought that would be a good opportunity to kind of like revisit their plans for the next like the back half basically and make sure that like they were kind of telling the story the way they wanted to and make some plans. But there has not really been any word on why it has continued so much longer than the original not that one year was like a projection per se, but usually when you say at least a year, people assume like roughly a year. To, Between to, one and two years yeah. probably, I think was the assumption for most people. Yeah, There's, there has not really been a lot of information on why it has extended longer than that. They both have worked on other things in the kind of intervening time. Um, obviously, Vaughn, like being a writer, has... A lot of a lot of it's it's easier for him to have kind of other projects on the go, and with the Y TV show um, starting up, that certainly has been something that has occupied his time. He has like done interviews occasionally, but usually just to say like we are coming back, we don't have a timeline yet. <laughs> it's the long and the short of it, and then otherwise just sort of talk about like the exact same things he would have talked about in like 2016 or 17, as far as the series goes. And then Staples has like provided occasional covers she's worked on a few projects 
for Wizard of the Coast or Wizards of the Coast. I think she did like the cover for a D&D campaign and she's done art for like some magic cards and stuff like that. But they have both remained kind of, uh, yeah, kind of mum on why the the hiatus has extended and have not really given any suggestion as to when it will be over. The fans <laughs> are not quite at the George R. R. Martin level. I wouldn't say yet as far as having gone completely insane, but <laughs> I think there's healthier ways to spend your time than uh, leaving comments under Brian K. Vaughn's Instagram posts asking when Saga is coming back. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, like, and again, like, I haven't really been, like, following, uh, this whole thing, obviously, I was not actively reading Saga before it went on intermission, but I feel like if I had waited this long, I would I would mostly be operating under the assumption that it will never come back. Oh, really? <laughs> like, not that I think it will never come back, but I think probably the healthiest way to deal, I mean, it's like... Right, you'd be at like the... It's like One Direction's hiatus. Right. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, for example, I I also wasn't actively reading Saga. I'd switched to trades uh, at this, like, by the time that the big hiatus came. But I had been following the, like, A Song of Ice and Fire, the books, for a while. So, I certainly can sympathize with the, like, very rigorously monitoring every single update that comes from the creators and like reading into every little thing as like a message. Um, but I just feel like having, having gone through that with the, with those books where we're now at like, over, I guess it's been 10 years since the last one came out. Yeah. 2011 was uh, a dance with dragons. That's crazy. I just feel like it's better to, adopt the mindset that like you enjoyed what you've gotten so far and anything else is going to be gravy than it is to try and like keep like sustain the hype and excitement because inevitably what happens is something will happen that will just like be <laughs> a bridge too far and break your spirit and then you'll just be like angry and bitter for a little while and like for me that was the 12 days of westeros <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with the 12 Days of Westeros? I'm not familiar with the 12 Days of Westeros. Uh, I, to briefly summarize, George R. R. Martin did this like big thing on his his not a blog, as he calls it, where he was like, 12 Days of Westeros, like something really exciting on Christmas, blah, 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 and was like making these daily update posts and the like online community worked itself up into a fervor of like, the the craziest people were like, Winds of Winter is coming out on that day. <laughs> Uh, right. the cooler heads were like he will announce the release date on that day and then the 12th day of westeros was like uh a like desktop background <laughs> and like merry christmas and people just like imploded and that was the point at which i was like they're never <laughs> it's never coming out <laughs> and if it ever does then i'll just like view it as a bonus yeah that's that's like that's like basically what i was saying is that like operating i mean and i'm not usually one of those people who's like oh like you should always be pessimistic because then you'll either be surprised or right but <laughs> in this specific instance i do kind of feel that way where it's like i don't have any ex like any expectations for 
anything to come out, I think, is often uh, a fool's errand. Like, just like because there are a million reasons why something cannot happen, mm-hmm. and a lot of things have to like work together for something to happen, and so. I just, I tend not to, like, it's a real, I'll believe it when I see it. And especially nowadays with, like, so much stuff has been delayed for so long. Mm -hmm. I was deeply upset when Top Gun Maverick was delayed to 2022. (laughs) I mean, you know how excited I am for Top Gun Maverick. It's going to be good. It's got fighter jets in it, so it, by definition, is going to be good. (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) So, like, yeah, especially nowadays, like, that, like, delaying things and things not coming out is sort of the name of the game. Mm -hmm. I'm much more inclined to just be, like, just wait. It's better, like, I think at this point, like, (laughs) I'm done with, like, the idea of anticipation because, like, I love going into a movie not knowing anything about it. I love, like, like, I like, I think it's more fun to consume things not even knowing what they're about even, much less like having anticipated their release because you're inevitably going to be comparing the thing to your like imagination of the thing. Mm-hmm. I think that was a huge thing with last Jedi as well. Not to, uh, <laughs> not to bring more controversy into it, but that like that so much of the backlash to that, at least initially, because obviously it took on a different form as time went on. But I think initially sure. a huge part of the backlash was that, the plot did not progress in the way that people expected it to progress. Yeah. And they saw that as like a betrayal of what they had sort of been promised by the ending of Force right. Awakens. And and I think like, especially again, not to get too all in on Last Jedi, but I think that the early <laughs> a response, great a great film, we, we agree on that. I think the early response to that was largely driven by the Luke storyline specifically where people were basically like, this isn't what I imagined his life after Return of the Jedi would be like. And that was like what made people angry more than like it was a bad movie. Yeah. Or what I, or what I read in the books as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just basically just like of this isn't what I promised. think it should be. And, and that, yeah, getting you mad. And, and I think like, you're right. Like I think I'm torn because obviously being like a fan of comics and a fan of Star Wars and a fan of the MCU, all these, all these like different properties that basically like sustain themselves on hype and, and like anticipation. Like I am naturally inclined to be excited for stuff. And also I think that you are right or, or rather that I agree with you at least that I am also at the point where like, same thing. Yeah, basically the same thing. I am also at the point where I would rather, like, it feels better to see a movie I knew nothing about and not like it than it does to see a movie that I really want to love and only think it's okay. Like, I would rather, in some ways, I'd rather dislike a movie that I had no expectations for than be disappointed by a movie that I really wanted to be good. Yeah, or, and then, or even like, because, like, and again, this goes back to that whole pessimist thing, which I don't like. But, like, if you go in with no expectations, either you're going to be like, wow, that was really good. Uh, or you're going to be like, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, and so, like, like either way, I think you're getting, like, the best scenario. Like, I think that a huge part, I mean, like, MCU movies, I think, are a perfect example of where my reaction to it is often directly influenced by like 
how excited I was for it and what I hoped it would be and all that stuff mm-hmm. more than it is like the quote unquote objective qualities of the movie. Right. Yeah, I I agree with you on that front. And I think that that probably contributes to a lot of people kind of getting burnt out on those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, like, as far as Saga goes, like, I, d- I don't know, I guess for some reason, I don't have that same pessimism, where like, it's not like delays in comics have always kind of been a thing like Astonishing X-Men famously, it took like, three years to get like the last three issues out or something like that. Image has kind of had a bit of an issue with this there was like kind of a period where image was like on fire and everything they put out was like seemed like it was like the greatest comic ever written and got everyone really excited they've kind of like since then and saga would be sort of on the list to an extent had an issue with creators just like kind of not being able to finish off their projects and like leaving a lot of things abandoned or books get solicited and never come out or for for various reasons, both, you know, reasonable and less reasonable books, books just like take a long time to come out. Like, I, I don't know, Jonathan Hickman, unfortunately, is someone who I think of a lot for this, who like delivers very or, or has like never had a problem getting books out in a corporate environment. But for his creator own stuff, like Manhattan Projects, took like a really long hiatus and then kind of had to be like dragged across the finish line to like a pretty underwhelming ending east of west ran into um issues towards the end of its run and like a lot of people are like not like kind of so-so on the ending and the last few issues in particular the black monday murders now that's kind of a different situation because the artist had some health issues that affected production but has put out eight issues in five years which is just like, so I, all this to say, like, it's not unheard of in comics for long hiatuses and for comics to return from long hiatuses and like successfully complete the runs. So I guess I, I haven't really like given up on Saga. And I think a lot of people have not given up on Saga. And mm-hmm. it helps that like Vaughn is still very firm that like it is coming back. But but I can appreciate, you know, I don't think people respond <laughs> well necessarily but i can appreciate why it feels frustrating to constantly hear that but never have any concrete beyond like oh it's definitely coming back um i read (laughs) an interview today where vaughn was talking about the hiatus like at the time that it was just starting and he was talking about how like we've always taken breaks and the response hasn't always been great uh, and I hope people will be okay with this big one. But he told this story about how when they first announced that they were taking a three-month break after the first arc, <laughs> a store owner sent Image Marketing a picture of his kids <laughs> and said, why are you taking food out of their mouths? <laughs> Which I was like, hmm. <laughs> what? <laughs> What profoundly unhealthy behavior. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's not good. And, I, can, I, you know, I can appreciate why fans sometimes feel frustrated, even if they at times can push more towards the entitled end of the spectrum from frustrated. Yeah. And really, uh, that thing with image is like kind of the ultimate irony, right? Because like usually comics having issues is a good thing. <laughs> But for them, (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's quickly wrap this up. I have a few 
survey questions again. Okay. That I, uh, there, there are a lot of, a lot of them are to do with sex, which I usually don't include due to the fact that we are siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you don't want to so, know? <laughs> I really don't <laughs> want to know what kind of kisser you are, mm. quite honestly. <laughs> so, let's stick with these ones. Uh, so, I have four for you. Number one is something I should know but don't remember. What song did you dance to with your spouse at your wedding? I was present. And you were present. You were in the in the wedding party. We danced to a cover of uh, Can't Help Falling in Love with You by a Canadian band called The Once. And was this your selection? Was this a joint selection? This How was this was uh, so my wife is not really comfortable being the center of attention and also loves you love tra- it, right? Yeah, I love it. Uh, I mean, why else would I think that people want to hear me talk about <laughs> 18 issues of a comic book for three hours? <laughs> Anyways, she she doesn't like being the center of attention. She does like traditions. So she wanted to have a first dance. But she wanted something that could like start off as a, something that was like a good first dance thing and then would kind of like ramp up that we could then like invite people to join us um, and like kick off the like actual dance. Mm-hmm. So that was like kind of we hadn't settled on something, but she was basically like, I want to do something like that. And then I heard this cover and was like, this basically does that and like can't help falling in love with you is like a pretty classic like wedding song that I was like, this could be good and played it for her. And she was like, great, don't <laughs> neither of us actually care that much. <laughs> but we were like, this, this satisfies the criteria. So that's what we went with. Sure. This is a great one. Rough. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you to go roughly by by issues because uh-huh. i know you have changed your your collecting habits over over the years mm-hmm. but roughly how many comic books do you own print and or digital by issue in term like so like i know you are mostly an omnibus person now well so yeah if you, collected like, editions if you're taking, like an omnibus is like a 12 issue thing or like a so how many i'm gonna i'm issues? gonna need a, a minute to do <laughs> do some math here Yes, uh, as as viewers no, don't know, you do your recording in your office, behind which sits a massive wall of comics. Which only represents about half of the comics in the room. Yes, uh, I've heard of the highest in the room, but the comics in the room, uh, that's a song. Mm-hmm. You, you know, pretty much for, I would say, about 10 years now, maybe a little more, You've been a comics collector. Uh, I have terrible memories of moving your comics, of moving long boxes. Yes, it uh, it was nightmarish. So if we're going by issues, oh, I forgot about digital. I don't have a ton of digital. I would say if we're going by issues, it's probably in the ballpark of about twelve thousand. That is that that's some like real like back of the napkin math though. Like the yeah. the, the I would say the. <laughs> variance in either direction on that could be as many as like two or three thousand yes a high margin of error yeah but yes i'm sure even hardcore comics fans are envious or horrified or something of you so godspeed to you on that Mm. i personally am in the horrified camp but also you know i bet most of the people i know in real life are in that camp i would say yeah. Ideally, who would play you in a movie oh. of your life? <sighs> I feel like we've talked about this before. We have? In some context, one time or another. Maybe not on this who, podcast. Who would you have play me and you? Oh. Same actor, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's think here. 
uh, it has to be one of the great glasses. But look, I think like I think our as time goes on, our appearances increasingly diverge. That's true. You've you've been rocking this long hair and beard look. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, let me let me just look up a list of actors under forty. <laughs> Well, Well, we also we also present a real challenge as mixed race children who that's true, but who are like pretty well white passing. But also like you have to get someone who when you have an Asian father on screen, you could be like, that could be his kid. Oh, you know what? How old is he now? Okay, so he's 40. But I think I think Tom Hiddleston could play you. <laughs> That's extremely flattering or insulting to Tom Hiddleston, possibly. Well, I mean, it's one way or another, it's going to be someone who is more handsome than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if you're picking yeah, a, a famous actor. True, fair, true. Certainly. To play me, I'm going to go with half Asian, half white. Uh, the most prominent half Asian, half white actor out there, Olivia Munn. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it you know who Psylocke herself you know who he's actually uh, he's probably too old but um <laughs> this is also possibly a crazy suggestion jermaine clement <laughs> sure i, I, I think it's not totally wild jermaine clement would play a great steven yeah uh, that's our, that's true the third the third runner <laughs> yeah <laughs> as he is sometimes called by fans of the group um, that that finally, actually also tracks because, as you'll recall, the kid who plays Boba Fett in uh, episode right. two looks exactly like how I looked at that age. He is yes. uh, like Pacific Islander of of some heritage that way because he's playing a clone of um, Tamara Morrison. Yes, that's right. Who is Maori and and Jimmy Clement also has is he Maori or he's he's got some some Pacific Islander background as well. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of Daniel Logan is the name of the uh, of the actor. Yeah, he doesn't look like me now, but <laughs> yeah, he looks less like you now. At than that he did at that then. age, we it it was quite shocking. <laughs> yes, uh, we should on, on the Twitter when this episode comes out, we should put up a picture <laughs> of you with your long hair next to uh, Daniel Logan as Boba Fett. Uh, <laughs> And final question, just because this is a comics-relevant one. This is old news now, but do you mind that DC Comics is using the Watchmen characters in new stories, even though Alan Moore probably wishes they'd not? Do we have another hour? Do you, are you good to go for another hour? <laughs> I can leave. Can... <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Do you not like it for just because... Do you think DC is doing them is just like not fit to handle the characters or do you not like it from like a moral standpoint? Both. So I think I think from a story standpoint, it is that they they have not yet told a story that to me is like this shows why we need to, to have the Watchmen characters in the DC universe. All the Watchmen characters are already takeoffs of characters that exist in the right. DC universe that I'm like, if you just just use them if you want to do something with them so bad like i yeah i think creatively it's like it's like bottom of the barrel stuff with watchmen already being a good standalone thing on its own that doesn't really have anything to add to the dc universe and like the the contrivances that they had to go through to get them in i was like this is you're like actively making the case for why (laughs) 
this should not be done. Yeah, so I think from from a story standpoint, it's boring. It's kind of hackneyed. It 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 just screams like we've run out of ideas. And then on the other side of things, like I've I've gone back and forth on more Alan Moore and like his general sort of attitude towards the Watchmen stuff over the years. I don't. I I think where I have like basically landed though is that he probably at this point should own Watchmen. And I think that DC does several other creators who don't own their characters the courtesy of asking them permission to use them. And if they say no, they don't. Like the Sandman characters would be one, Starman is another. They have like a handshake agreement with James Robinson and with Neil Gaiman not to use those characters without their permission so that they can like kind of protect the legacy of landmark comics. Yeah, it's also probably a situation where they do that because they know that there's a possibility that they'd say yes sometimes. Yeah, that's true. But um, I'm not saying that that's like a defense of them. But like, I think that it's easier to have a handshake agreement when you know that <laughs> you're going to get something out of it. That's true. But um, the fact like it was it, it was bad enough that they have just like continued to so so basically the agreement with Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons was the this is like a DC comic we are going to own the copyright until the book goes out of print for a year, at which point the rights will revert to you. In 1984, that meant like basically a year after the series was over, you get the rights. And what subsequently happened was that DC basically like invented the trade market so that they could keep Watchmen in print forever. <laughs> so in theory, oh. if they went a year without like with Watchmen out of print, the rights would still revert to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. They just have kept it in print the entire time so that the rights have never reverted. And Moore's position is basically like, this is like by the letter of the agreement, obviously this is fine. By the spirit in which the agreement was made, this is like a slap in the face and a betrayal. And like those those characters and that property should have become mine and Dave Gibbons decades ago. So, yeah, I can I can s sympathize with why that stuff bugs him. And also, I, I think, like, as vocal as he's been about that over the years, it also seems like he's kind of over it now. Like, he doesn't really talk about it now. I'm sure it still fr frustrates him, but he's kind of, like, said his piece. And if nobody ever asked him about it again, you probably wouldn't hear about it. But people just, like, can't <laughs> help themselves. And anytime he talks to anybody, they're like, so... DC, right? And he's like, yep, <laughs> like still sucks. And they're like, Alan Moore still furious with DC. Read our interview here. And it's like one one line where the interviewer brings it up and he like kind of obviously doesn't really want to talk about it. <laughs> but they like ask him directly and he's like, well, I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah, I still think that that was bad. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, you could really say that more is less. Yeah, indeed. And part of the reason that I side, oh, so, yeah, I'm not done. Part of the reason why I side so heavily and became even more annoyed slash angry is that since doing that with the Watchmen characters, they have now also put Promethea and Tom Strong into mainstream DC Universe books at different points. Those would be two like two characters with their own kind of like standalone universes that he created while he was at Wildstorm. Where I'm kind of like, okay. 
So, like, now that you have, like, guaranteed his rage for all time, I guess you're just going to, like... You don't care. It, it It's, like, such a naked cash-in at this point that, like, listen, Tom Strong is good. He has, a, like, so nothing to do with DC that it, it just becomes such an obvious cash-in on Alan Moore's name, which is both a, again, creatively, I'm like, you didn't have a better idea than Alan Moore's Doc Savage pastiche. <laughs> And then on like a moral perspective, I'm just like, so you're now at this point, like, people don't even know who Tom Strong is, <laughs> like, re- like, he's not some super popular character. They know who Alan Moore is. So if you say we're bringing this Alan Moore character back, you're literally now profiting off of Alan Moore's name, because of like a shady business deals that he got screwed out of, and he has no position to profit from. So I I don't like that Watchmen is in the DC universe. I don't like it what it seems to have opened the door for. Like, are we going to get like V versus Batman in the near future? I don't think that that's like an impossibility based on where they're going. It's really not. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't like it. And that's unfortunate because creators who I really like a lot have worked on some of those books. Like Darwin Cook did some of the before Watchmen titles. Jeff Lemire wrote the book that the that Tom Strong was in. Yeah, various, various different things. But and and for as far as they go, I'm not like you shouldn't have done that. I don't I don't necessarily feel like I have a strong opinion either way on what the creators do once the company has hired them for the job. Like, I don't think that they necessarily had a moral responsibility to turn that work down. But I do think that DC shouldn't have (laughs) put any creators in a position where they had to decide whether or not they wanted to participate in uh, what they have done with Alan Moore and his his work and legacy over the years. For sure. I'm glad... I'm glad we were able to fill your usual space where you rant for 15 minutes about comics <laughs> awards with a new segment where you rant for 15 minutes about something else. I'll try and uh, I'll try and keep that going in subsequent episodes. Mm-hmm. But that is most certainly going to do it for today's episode. I I'm not really sure. I haven't checked how long most of our episodes are lately, but I imagine this is our longest episode apart from understanding comics, perhaps. By the time I'm done editing this, it will be it will be like in the sculptor and understanding comics range for sure. But thank you all for listening, especially if you made it all the way to the end here. <laughs> uh, next week, we will be covering The Private Eye, the full 10-issue uh, series there. I don't know anything about that, uh, so I'm excited to jump into that. I will not uh, influence your expectations one way or the other. Great. Uh, for now, please don't forget to... Um, masticate and careful (laughs) and elevate us on uh, (laughs) Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast. We uh, don't forget to follow at is it at got the runs pod? That is correct. Uh, on Twitter, and don't forget to send us an email uh, at got the runs pod at gmail.com if you have a question. Once we collect probably a solid collection of those i imagine we might do a some kind of mailbag yeah two or three years from now we'll we'll probably have enough emails that we can spend an entire episode reading and talking about them not a three-hour episode perhaps Uh but yeah oh no i'm talking about like a a 30 minute joint (laughs) you don't think that we could spin one question into (laughs) a far too long discussion uh Press the rewind twenty minutes button if you think that that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, we should we should invent a podcast app that has a skip twenty minutes button. 
And then whenever, whenever people get the sense that things are gearing up, they can just jump ahead. But thank you all for listening. Rate and review us. Give us two stars. Or five. Uh, I mean, don't maybe rate this specific episode, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were talking about this earlier. Do you, what, how would you rank the uh, the baseball bases? Does does home plate count? <laughs> home plate counts. One to four. And and one to four best to worst? Yeah. Best, best where, to worst. Where four is home. So I'm going to go four, four, three, one, two. You're saying four home plate is the best yeah okay that's a, that's a the of... that's the glitzy spot you know that's no, isn't I, that ultimately where we're trying to get right like i agree i think home plate is top two i think that people ignore the significance and the workmanship of first base it's the most visited base it's the base that uh on almost every play first base is always in play mm-hmm. uh and i think uh, i think it just gets overlooked in these discussions but let us know what you think about that. <laughs> uh, but let's not dilly-dally any longer. Until next time. To, to be, be continued. continued. Bye-bye. <laughs>